Your move, creep. Wish me luck, Freezer. You go, Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. That's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's my form! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. Wow. It's been a minute, Austin. It's been a second. Yep. <laughs> we, yep. we both kind of unplugged a little bit from the podcast. Uh, sort of. I mean, I went on vacation for a little bit. And then coming back, we had to kind of regroup, kind of like figure out, all right, where are we at? What, what needs to be done? But also, there have been some developments in the film industry. Yeah, so the... What developments is George talking about? Well, there is a huge strike going on. The biggest strike in the, maybe, in the history of the film industry. Because you not only do you have the Writers Guild, uh, the, the WGA striking, uh, which we talked about on the Patreon, but you also have the Actors Guild, the SAG-AFTRA. They are also on strike as well. It's been close to 60 or 70 years since they both striked at the same time. The last strike that the industry went through was, I think, in 2008, 9, 10. Um, the Writers Guild strike. Yes, the Writer Guild. The Writers Guild. Uh, but now the writers and the actors are striking against us, the studios and the streamers, mostly because of streaming. And, um, you know, they're, they're uh, striking for very good reasons, very legitimate reasons, mm-hmm. residuals, artificial intelligence like these streamers have gone away with huge profits uh and the writers and actors are struggling you know like so, so some of the because most actors and writers don't make the millions that like the leos or the merrills will make you know from a role most of them right. make a livable wage, sometimes below livable sometimes i think i read it's like twenty six thousand a year for actors mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really hard, you know, and in the world of streaming, like success uh, can be success can be considered in many different metrics that the studios and streamers do not publicly show. So it's hard to see. It's hard to say what show is succeeding or what not. What's not succeeding. That's basically the gist of it. And so Austin decided, hey, we should kind of adjust our podcast to kind of uh, go with the times. Right. Right, because the the Screen Actors Guild, uh, they've, you know, they're the actors there. You know, they're not going to promote their movies. They're standing with their union. They're not going to promote struck companies. Um, And they've asked content creators and influencers not not to do that as well. And they've said, if you do, we won't let you in the union when when the guild, when the strike is over. Uh, Which, you know, they're... Because if you do, right, if you're promoting the movie, you're doing their job. And what do you call someone who takes the job of a worker on strike? A scab. A scab. And, you know, that's that undermines their efforts. And then I I believe in the the creative people behind all the films that we love to watch and talk about. So I I stand with them, even though I'm not in that union. I probably would. I don't even know if I'd ever be in their, the SAG after union, you know, because I'm not an actor, but... 
I would like to be a writer. So not even not even being affiliated with them. Really, the and 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 look, we're not. We we. This is kind of what we we've decided to do. Personally, I don't take it upon. I don't. I'm not going to talk about other podcasts that do continue to talk about the podcast because that's that's their show, and I'm sure they they have their reasoning for doing so. Um, but uh, for me personally, I I just think it's a good route because. Number one, these studios are taking advantage of creatives all around, right? And they're Mm -hmm. trying to do this to save costs. And the other reasoning is there's a lot of media out there that is still that you could still still watch and enjoy without having to benefit a lot of these studios that are just not giving into these to these uh, to these uh, strike offers, you know? Yeah, and but also the the unions aren't asking you to like don't go watch any movie. No. You know, they're not saying don't go watch Barbie. They're saying, yeah, go watch whatever movie you want. But like, don't try to make content promoting the movie that, you know, we're that's being released by a company that is hurting us, you know. Mm-hmm. And this gives us uh, this also gives us a chance to explore different uh, movies and shows that we don't normally talk about. But it, it gives us a wider horizon you know, because on before before this, we were going to talk about uh, Hulk. The we actually recorded the first part of the Hulk movie, yeah. the two thousand three Ang Lee one with Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly. Um, but we kind of pushed that aside for this week's movie, just because you know it's a that's what Hollywood's dependent on right now: big franchises, big studio temples, um, <laughs> superhero films, and they've kind of neglected every other type of film that isn't a big temple. And you know what? I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of just there only being superhero films. I want to see other stuff. And I think this is an opportunity for us to kind of talk about that other stuff. Um, just maybe some some ones that are a little bit different that aren't totally, you know, in the zeitgeist. Right. And oddly enough, this one kind of is in, in some way. Well, it, like it is. Yes. In some non-studio <laughs> way, it is in the zeitgeist. It, it is a film that has specific shots that are like replicated throughout animation and film. I think most recently Nope did the same the bike one, yeah. thing, mm-hmm. the bike shot. Yeah. Um, but it's spoilers. You probably see the title of the episode. We are going to be talking about 1988's Akira, the animated film from Japan uh, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo. Akira is one of those animated movies that people will say is one of the greatest animation films of all time. Uh, It's one you've probably seen GIFs of. Maybe you've seen it. I have actually never seen the movie. You've never seen this movie? I've never seen this movie. Okay. It's been one that I was, you know, like, it's like, oh, it's got to be an event. For some reason, that's the way I am. Like, oh, when I watch that movie, I can't. It can't just be like on a random night. It has to be like, yes, I'm watching Akira for the first time. Because mm. it's a movie that is so, I've heard so many good things about. I couldn't just. I don't know. This, this is the way I am with some movies. I guess I was waiting for this podcast to to happen so that I could finally watch all these movies. Like I've never seen The Godfather until this this podcast either. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of movies that we that I haven't seen that we've talked about in this podcast, and I'm really glad that I'm watching them and talking about them with you because I feel like getting that like second opinion, kind of what you think, what we talk about, what we research, and then that movie staying with me 
kind of mm-hmm. has definitely opened up my film vocabulary a lot more than I imagined it would initially. And I'm interested to do that again with Akira because I saw this movie with uh, friends of the podcast, Aaron and Alicia. We watched it at their place. They have a projector that's that, that screens onto the wall, right? So it's a big, it's kind of big. And they had been talking about this movie for years. Like, oh, you know, Akira is so amazing and it's beautiful, all that stuff. And I'm like, all right, we'll see. We'll see how good it is, right? Because, you know, people do that all the time. <laughs> They'll take the classics and overhype it. And I watched it and I was like, this might be one of the most interesting science fiction films I've ever seen. I don't totally get it. I liked what I saw, but there is so much to unpack in terms of the technical aspects, like the actual animation, how they went about it, the creation of the movie, but also what the movie is about. Because it has strong allusions to nuclear warfare, to government experimentations, to bio-warfare, and to atomic energy, which is kind of what you were referring to earlier. It's still kind of relevant uh, in today's in today's world because we're still dealing with nuclear warfare the threat of it, but also more more recently with the release of Oppenheimer, this movie directly deals with that. And the movie's set in Tokyo, so it's obviously making some reference to the bombings in Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But having seen it for the first time, I couldn't really understand what it was trying to say, what, what was the specific thing that it was trying to say, or just trying to put the picture in my head. Because it's a... It's kind of a complicated movie. It's not neatly arranged. There's like little stories here and there that kind of go in and out. And like, there's no real main character. I mean, I guess there is, but it cuts between all these different characters. And you don't know who is the main character journey. Who's the main guy that I'm supposed to side with? And that's what made this movie so intriguing the first time I watched it. Now, I haven't seen it since. I'm really curious to see what you're going to think of it, Austin. Yeah, I'm curious to finally watch this one. It's, it's, I feel like the time is right. Let's see. What should we talk about next? I don't have much to say because I've never seen the movie. I just know the some of the, the shots and like the, the meme, I think. Of the bike? No, the meme of, uh, I think his name is Tetsuo. Oh, where it's like, leave me alone! Yes, the meme where he's like, leave me alone. Ah! It's like something is like fucking with his head. Mm-hmm. But like, they'll change what's fucking with his head. Like, oh, it's that it's that TikTok with the uh, Electronica European dance group. And he <laughs> just has that song stuck in his head. All of the dream. You know, what does it mean? Um, and I, I was like, damn, it's been like 20 plus 30, 30. Close to 30. Yeah, it's been 35 years. Oh, this is the anniversary. Well, it's it, the movie was released in Japan in July 16th, 1988. Oh. So we missed the anniversary by by a bit, but uh <laughs> yeah, so, it's, so it's close all enough. good. We're, it's all good. Yeah. I'm excited to watch this movie. Um I'm I don't know if we should say where you can watch this movie because we don't want to like promote the streaming companies that are stealing from the artists, but you know, that's probably where we're going to watch it. That's probably where I'm going to watch it. You could also rent the movie on, you could also rent the movie as well. There's uh, a bunch of video yeah. stores and there's online ways to, to pay for it. So 
it is considered one of the greatest animated films of all time. Animated sci-fi. Yes. This movie is a big landmark film. Critics loved it. And I think it's interesting to, to look into that, but also as to what it's saying about nuclear warfare, right? Because that's definitely one of the big things. Mm. So there's a, there's, there's a lot to get into with this movie. I encourage people to go watch it, but I think this is, I'm really excited about this one. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can talk about the manga, which was released in 82. Um, maybe go over some of the differences. In case you're, you don't know, the, when you say anime, you're referring to the, the animation, the moving picture, right? When you refer to the manga, that's like the comic book. So it was a, it's like a comic book adaptation. Um, and the manga is apparently different from the anime. So maybe we can talk about that. Uh, we can talk about how influential it was uh, in film. There's this really cool GIF I, I saw of like all the people that copied the Akira bike slide. I saw that too, yeah. Uh, you saw that? That's, yeah, I think it was so like cool. a YouTube video for me. But yeah, they basically just put a compilation of all of them together, mm -hmm. sliding into one you another. see it happen in like uh, Adventure Time and Steven Universe and also like Gravity Falls and Nope and uh, Fortnite and stuff. It's, it's wild. We should probably talk about, I don't know, there's some like cultural stuff that was happening in Japan as well. Because I was trying... Normally, we talk about the year, the cinematic year of, of like when the film was released. But 1988 in Japan, very different from 1988 in the States. We have gone over to 1988 before. Do you remember? Oh, I don't. It's very interesting. Wait, no, the no, no. Time... Little Shop of Horrors. No, that no, was 85. That was 80, 86 or 87. I think it was 86. Because 86 is like the year that it was like, damn, what a lot of... Crazy movies happening in this year. Wait, so what movie did we talk about in 88? Totoro. Totoro ah, came out in 88. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in, in America, the highest grossing films were, number one, Rain Man. Number two, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Number three, Coming to America. Four, Crocodile Dundee. Two, five, Twins. Uh, six, Rambo Three. Seven, A Fish Called Wanda. <laughs> I've never heard of this movie, but we must have talked about it before. Number eight, Cocktail. Uh, nine, Big. And number ten was Die Hard. Mm -hmm. I believe we also talked about this year when we, we covered The Beast. Mm, that was a good one. Uh, you know, not, not, not trying to just pigeonhole this movie to nuclear warfare. But in 1988, we, we talked about My Neighbor Totoro, right? That released in that same year. And we, mm -hmm. in that episode, we talk about how this movie was kind of released as a part of a double feature with Grave of the Fireflies, which we haven't right. seen, but that movie is directly tied into World War II. Yes, they, they both are in a way. They're, one of them is a, a reflection of what happened and the other one is like what, what could have been. It's kind of like a utopian version of, of events, you know, mm -hmm. they both have to deal with, with nuclear war and everything. And also in the same year, you have Akira. Mm -hmm. That deals a lot so, more explicitly with it. Now, through a science fiction oh, lens. No, no, but explicitly, it's, it's, it's through that science fiction lens. Well, they, because, well, the thing, I mean, explicitly. Explicitly would be showing it, right? Uh, well, 
Kinda. I don't know. And they they sh- and I think what happens in in Akira is a science fiction future. Well, yes, 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 yes. It is. It is Neo Tokyo. Grave of the Fireflies is. I, I believe it takes place in World War Two. It's not. It's not some like made up. Oh, country. I see what you. Okay, mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like like uh, Grave of the Fireflies is explicit because it's very much in that time era in that space. Uh, Akira is more is science fiction. It is uh fictionalized because neo tokyo obviously no no in that regard yes you are correct uh this is this is much more talking about it like um let's remove the bomb from this era and let's take this energy and let's talk about it through a science fiction lens right uh but it's very much like this is what it is that's what's so interesting you're seeing creatives at this time talking about this this huge thing that had happened 40 years ago, right? The, the dropping of the bomb happened close to 30, 40 years ago before their releases. Mm-hmm. But Japan is still talking about it. They're revisiting this. And I'm I'm curious as to why that is. Why? I, I mean, I think part of it, part of it is that they never really talked about it before. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think when these things happen, the government kind of like doesn't like talking about it, how harmful the radiation was to people and how it shell-shocked that country mm-hmm. you know and the, the people living there so I, I think you see these nuclear stories come from japan in a variety of, of ways as it's almost as if it's their way of dealing with it like godzilla wouldn't wouldn't have happened without the bombs neither would akira neither would grave of the fireflies and maybe maybe not even like the the Common Rider and and all those like uh, superheroes that fight the giant monsters, you know, maybe that's their way of dealing with it. But we could look into that. Yeah, it's just the just a coincidence that it's you know three movies released in the same year that in their way, shape, and form talk about past events, particularly the at- the atom bomb bomb. And yeah. I don't know. I think it's just. Uh, I, I get obviously it's the whole. Oppenheimer kind of we're still talking about it it's still in theaters it's from a different perspective it's, though Oppenheimer doesn't show the people that were affected by the a, atomic bombs and the atomic bomb testing you know because they tested the bombs in in the states and people died and we don't hear their story mm-hmm. but I guess it is a movie about Oppenheimer so it's from his perspective it's not a I don't know it's but here we are talking about a movie that comes from the perspective of people that were affected by this. So if if you feel like that movie didn't didn't speak or show the story of the people affected, I encourage you to then go find something that does come from the the perspective of the people that were affected. There's I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of cinema uh, that deals that deals with it, uh, a lot of books. It is always interesting to see how these artists incorporate these stories into these different genres and kind of what they're trying to say about it. And that's, that was something that was confusing for me the first time I finished it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to go back and watch that again. Oh, I guess I could briefly talk about some of the other films that were in Japan. I couldn't find a definitive list of what was the most popular in Japan, but I came up with a few titles. Interesting. And I bring this up because of what we just talked about. Uh, one movie was called Hope and Pain, directed by Yoji Yamada, 
and the synopsis, Adventures and Tribulations of a Group of Students During the Years Following the Second World War. Whoa. Uh, and then I got another one, Tokyo Pop, which is, I saw the trailer, it's in English. Uh, it's like a white punk rock singer, rock and roll singer, goes to, J- to, to Japan to try to make it in the music industry, and she meets Hiro, who's a Japanese rock guy and they do a band together it's like a romantic comedy kind of thing it seems kind of cheesy but i I don't know people said it was really sweet too so i don't know fun fact it was directed by the person who did the buffy the vampire slayer film oh oh the film yeah um also a movie called the silk road it is one of the highest grossing japanese films of all time whoa so this is like a historical drama. Another film called Wuthering Heights set in medieval Japan. Those, those names kept coming up. There's also like a Dragon Ball movie that came out. And they, I think, two different uh, Kamen Rider things that came out. I, I really want to do Kamen Rider, like the most recent one for the modern grade series. Because that movie looks incredible. Do you know what Kamen Rider is? No. Uh, he's like a superhero who's like a bug guy, but he also rides a motorcycle. Oh, which I think is kind of a thing in Japan because Akira, I believe the main characters are like in a biker game. Yes. That's like a whole different subculture because like when you think of bikers, you think of like white dudes in leather vests and stuff with who like listen to Iron Maiden and shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but in, in Japan, it's a little bit different. Maybe we can get into that. We watch the film. There's a lot of things to talk about. And I hope uh, this hypes you up for the rest of our Akira episode. So with that, we will see you in one minute. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure, Akira. Hello, everybody. We are back from watching 1988's Akira, directed and written by Katsuhiro Otomo. Based on the manga Akira, also by Katsuhiro Otomo. First time I've ever watched this movie, despite it being so famous. Despite me kind of like an anime, you know, and this being one of the most famous anime movies of all time. Probably one of the most successful, you know, outside of the Studio Ghibli uh, movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we talked about this in the first part, but how 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 big of a fan are you of anime? Like on a scale of one to ten, ten being ten being weebish and one being no zero. Interest I don't know how I feel about the term weeb, considering like how you how that word is constructed. I don't know if anyone has like a think piece on it or what, whatever. But I'm not white, so I I don't think I can be. <laughs> Wait, is weeb referring to race as well? I think so. Right? Like, what is, what is the, full, the full word? 
I don't know what the full word is. I know weeb, W-E-E-B. It's short for something, which is like a conjunction of two other things that, are, I don't know, it's, I feel like the, uh, is the word, etymology of the word is kind of problematic, but I feel like we, we throw it out so much that we've kind of like distanced ourselves from what the term actually refers to. Like, um, I don't know. Let's, I'm trying to think of something else that's like, but it's, it's a tangent, tangent, dude. Right, well, let's go a, back to the initial question. It's actually, it's, it's actually interesting because now I'm really curious about Weeb. I'm going to, I'm going to Google it after we're done because okay. I, I am kind of curious about it now. But okay, well, okay, then to paraphrase, 10 is a hardcore fan. Like you've, you, th- these are the people that have anime tattoos tattooed on their bodies. That's how serious they are about it. On, on a uh-huh. scale from one, no interest to 10 absolute interest where do you say you're at okay so my history with anime is complicated when i was a teenager i was very much into it and then when i got into college i was like no and then i kind of got into it a little bit um with some i think some netflix series devil man crybaby was like damn i kind of miss anime but I haven't really watched very many since then. I just, I just, I feel like a lot of people think very like um, little of anime. They kind of like see it as like a lesser art form. And when I was growing up, I was really into it. And then I feel like the, that negative stigma affected my view of it. So I was like, I don't like this anymore. I don't want to play with you anymore, you know? <laughs> and then as I grew older and saw all the, like the Studio Ghibli stuff and more Studio Ghibli stuff and just the other things that anime does and the ways it, it can tell stories and how it doesn't always have to be this type of thing. I was like, damn. Oh, and Guilty Gear, Guilty Gear Strive. I got into anime fighters. I'm like, damn, anime is pretty cool. So I would say, I would say I used to be like a nine. And then I was like down to like a two or three. And now I'm like seven turning on eight. After watching Akira, I'm an eight now. Okay, interesting. So I think for me, uh, I I can like different pieces of media, different genres uh, without committing to it. I think in terms of my general interest in anime is probably like a three or four, like below average. Like I've seen my fair share. I've, I watched uh death note, which I really, really loved I, uh, attack on Titan, which I really, really, really loved, but it took so long in between seasons that I kind of just stopped watching. Cause I was just like, I, I can't wait two years between seasons. Obviously like the anime workforce that the animators, it is rough. It's very there. rough. Yeah, it's re- very rough. And I'm not going to just like pull out a whip and go to these animes like hurry up. Stop seeing your families like make this faster. I'm obviously that's cruel, but there is like a weird like, ah, you know, like I really love this show, but it's taken forever for for it to come back. You just kind of time happens. You lose a little bit of interest. I'll watch every a few episodes. Like I grew up watching Yu Gi Oh. I don't know if that's an anime. That's an anime. Okay. Anime is, is just Japanese animation. Okay. 
So yeah, like Yu-Gi-Oh! Pokemon. So it was I've always uh I've always had an admiration. But again, if I'm being fair and honest, I'm like, yeah, it's a three or four. Like I it's not that I don't absolutely not care, but compared to like other people, I'm just not seeking out more anime. Which is which is interesting because we're gonna be talking about Akira today. Yeah, and like I don't think I'm someone who's seeking out new animes to watch. Like I don't ha- I don't look at Crunchyroll, but like if somebody says, oh, have you seen this anime? I'm kind of like willing to listen to them, you know, or if some mm. if there's like a new anime style fighter, I'm like, I'll watch a trailer. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, I, like I said before, I was like, oh, I'm a seven. But after watching Akira, I'm like, OK, I'm an eight now because this movie is was so good and it shows all the things the anime could be. You know, I think what I don't like about some anime is how it it has to, it it fits like a certain mold, I guess, which is what you can say about a lot of different media, right? There's like music that kind of all kind of sounds the same. There's movies that all kind of do the same thing. There's uh, television shows that all follow the same formula. But you can't knock the entire medium because of these things that are really popular that all fit the same mold, right? There's so many other things that this medium can do. And I think Akira is a great example of that. It is so different from some of the other anime films I've seen or other animated movies I've seen, 2D animated movies I've seen. It is kind of confusing. When it ended, I didn't really know how to describe how I felt about it. Like I watched it with my brother who was a big fan of the film and he's, he talked about all these characters that he liked, but I'm like, I don't even know what to think right now. I'm just kind of thinking about moments in the movie that they kind of stuck with me ever since that I finished watching it for the first time. Like the, the juxtaposition of these like horrible things happening in this country. And then we cut to commercial of like this really trivial light whatever thing on the, on the on the screen and then we see these like cartoon dogs that are like you know cartoon dogs they're happy and whatever meanwhile there is these two hounds chasing this bloodied man with a child and he shoots them in the head in front of children as this like these cute dogs on the the TV screen are are like jumping around and stuff right it made me feel depressed i guess but also kind of it was also kind of beautiful in these other moments it's a great movie i'll say that very rich rich movie i would say i think once we'll get more into it but i think i largely agree with you like it's a great movie there's a lot to look at in this movie i feel like if this is one of those movies we've said this a few times where like you could teach a course because there's a lot happening here both in terms of the technology that the animators are using but also uh what the film is even talking about what it's trying to get at Mm -hmm. you really don't know how to feel like was it all a good thing or a bad thing what happened what's the takeaway and for me this really is like a piece of art like so okay we for me personally um movies all movies 
are a form of art, but some of them kind of, I don't want to say lesser, but some of them you don't take as serious. Some of them are lean more towards entertainment, right? This is where you've got your hot rods, your, your Norbits for me. Uh, and then you've, then you've got something that you could chew on a little bit more that kind of demand a little bit more of the viewer. And then you have movies that are like almost literal pieces of art. Like it gives you, some information and it really asks a lot more out of you to say okay time for you to put the pieces together kind of like a david lynch movie like Mm -hmm. maholland drive is very much that a lot of his movies are like that uh a recent movie that i watched a few years a movie that came out a few years ago that i really loved was mother i saw it with a group of people and everyone kind of had their own varying interpretation of what that film was about Akira is almost kind of the same. It's almost very much in that realm where it's like, oh, it could be about the nuclear family. It could be the destruction of Japan. It could be uh, an apocalypse apocalypse uh, uh, genre film. It could be a historical film. It could be, it's a lot of different things. And it really just, you have to just go in with an open mind and just trying to just break things down. And I've been reading mm-hmm. some analysis pieces on the film from other writers and they've come up with some really interesting takeaways and even some that are like so counterintuitive that I'm like, holy shit, like you're right. Like I didn't even think about it that way. Like I'm kind of pigeonholing myself to this one idea when I'm not even really trying seeing the whole scope of what the film is on top of it being very dense in terms of what it's talking about. It's also just entertaining to watch. Like it's a beautiful, gorgeous movie to look at. But it's just also entertaining, like the dialogue, the characters, the violence, the horror elements. It's just like, what the fuck am I seeing this? And just the, it just leaves you in awe to the point where, yeah, I feel exactly like how you felt. You, you're watching this and you get to the end and you're like, what the fuck? I'm like, I can't even. It's something that you kind of have to like sit with, you know, to like to like think about. I could not say anything after watching it i was just kind of thinking about it like i definitely liked it like i definitely felt like that was a great movie what do i take away from it how do what's my response i don't know let me think about it (laughs) yeah yeah and it's been it's been some time since since we've uh watched the film and that now we're recording and i've i think i have a lot to say about it and you know what not every movie needs to be like this super dense and heady but it is good to, it is, it's some good vegetables. You need vegetables every now and then. And this is a good meaty plate of vegetables. Good for the soul. <laughs> good for the soul. So when we talk about these movies, usually here's about the part where we summarize the film. If you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a long time, if you want to watch the movie, now you can like pause the episode and like watch the movie and then hear us talk about it. Or you can just listen to us here. You know, maybe you're doing chores and stuff. This this part of the episode is for you then. Okay, so the movie starts on in July 17th, 1988, which is the release date of the movie. Might be July 16th. I think July 16th. Anyway, it's the release date of the movie, which I think was really cool. And then you see Tokyo and it explodes. And then it goes 31 years after World War Three, right? So now we have this new Tokyo, Neo Tokyo, and it's it's very much like a Blade Runner type vibe. You know, there's like neon signs and like, oh, look at all these things you can buy. Look at, look at how advanced technology is. 
Meanwhile, you see the people down below living in squalor. There's a bike gang called the Capsules, led by Canada, who is our main character. And he is leading his gang to chase these other, this other biker gang called the Clowns. Uh, we have Yam Yamagata. Yamagata is his like second-in-command. Uh, Tetsuo, who becomes the villain, the main villain, pretty much, who is like Canada's um, friend, his like best friend, sort of. He's like the runt of the group, or he feels like he's the runt of the group. He's like last to, to get on the in in line when he's like riding the bikes and stuff. Kind of kind of making fun of him for not having a cool cool bike like he does. And then we have Kai, who wears a tie, and he's like small, but he's got a lot of heart. And there's other ones, but I don't think they're they're ever named. They're chasing these clowns, and it's a really violent chase, right? They're like riding these motorcycles. Kinda's bike is pretty badass, and they're like hitting the clowns with these metal pipes, and also throwing Molotov cocktails at cars. Uh, so they're just tearing up the town. And there's also a big protest going on. And there's also this guy who's like running away with his kid who has like bluish purple skin who looks old as fuck. Like he's wrinkled, but he's a child. It's weird. They're running away. Uh, these guys get caught. The police just execute the dude and the kid runs away. But before the kid runs away, uh, the kid's name is oh man oh the, the uh, young Ta one takashi yeah mm -hmm. the boy's name is takashi or number 26 he's an esper which means he has like psychic telekinesis powers right so he sees the guy get executed violently there's a lot of blood he screams at the sight of the blood and the violence and there's a little bit of a commotion in in the in the city like the glasses all break there's like this sign that like comes down people are running like this kid's got some power right uh the police are starting to use tear gas to break up the protests which are about like taxes and some other stuff uh we don't really know what's going on we just know the people are unhappy and they the police break every break up the protests there's these people who are Accomplices of the guy that was executed there trying to make their escape is Kei and Ryu. Um, eventually, Tetsuo is has chased this guy down, like one of the last clown guys down. He's going way too fast, right? He's He needs to like prove himself to the rest of his group. And he chases the guy down, and he almost crashes into this kid, Takashi. But Takashi uses his powers to protect himself. And Tetsu is thrown from his bike and he's like, what the hell happened? Because his bike just exploded and he was on it. <laughs> so he's like, what are, what happened? His gang comes by and they're like, hey, Tetsu, are you all right? And he's like, that kid. And then they look and they see the kid and they're like, what the hell? Who, who are you? And then these military helicopters fly in. And they light up the, the scene and the kid's like, what the hell's happening? They take Tetsu... They take uh, the kid back. There's another kid that helps the military. He's he's in like a, a chair, like 
like a baby Yoda type chair. <laughs> uh, his name is Masaru, I believe. Masaru, number 27. Also a psychic. And they're led by the Colonel, who is another major character. I'm just going to refer to him as the Colonel. He's in charge of the, the well-being and the, the safety of these espers, these psychic children. Um, they take him away. They take Tetsuo to a hospital. And then they have all the other capsules, the biker gang. They have them all arrested. Uh, the Colonel talks with the scientist, who I'll just call the doctor, and they discover that Tetsuo also has some psychic powers that have been awakened by this event. And they need to like closely monitor him because if anything, he, he has like the power levels of Akira, uh, who caused the explosion at the very beginning of the movie 31 years ago. And if anything gets out of hand, if they can't control his powers, they need to destroy him. They need to kill him. Meanwhile, the capsules, they kind of lie their way out with, of the police. They're like, oh, we were just uh, visiting our sick mother. You know, we weren't, we weren't doing anything wrong. And uh, Canada sees K, uh, K who, is, uh, who is there at the protest. She's an accomplice of the guy that was executed. She's a resistance fighter. Uh, he sees her and he tells the cops that, oh, she's with us. So they let her go. And she's like, thanks for helping me out, but I'm not into you, Canada. So she goes her own way. And the guys are kind of wondering what's happening with Tetsuo. Uh, these girls come by and they're like, what, what's happening? And they're, they kind of just ignore them. Or Canada ignores the girl that's into him. Because I guess he's into K now. Uh, they're worried about Tetsuo. But Tetsuo manages to escape his military prison. And then he gets together with his girlfriend, Kaori. And Kaori is very shy and, like, timid. She's very, very in love with Tetsuo. And he says that they should run away together. So he steals Canada's, Canada's bike and <laughs> rides off, but they are jumped by the clowns. And the clowns, like, rip off Kaori's shirt so that she's she's topless and they punch her in the face. By the way, Kaori is 15 years old. These are all teenagers. Um, so they beat her up and then they start beating up Tetsuo and they start they threaten to to uh, burn Canada's bike, but the rest of the gang gets there and kind of saves Tetsuo and Kaori. And Tetsuo is like, I didn't need your saving, leave me alone. And then he's getting these visions, these psychic visions of Akira. He keeps hearing that name and he's like, ah! he sees a vision of his blood or his guts like spilling out in front of him. He's freaking out. None of the other people see this. They just see their friend in the mental distress. The military comes by and picks up Tetsuo and they like shove or punch kind of down to the ground. They're like, get out of here. So they take Tetsuo back to the 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 base where they can do their like experiments and monitor him and everything. Canada is just still thinking about what's what's happening. Like there's something happening with his friend. Uh, he sees he sees Kay running from police after an explosion, and he like follows her around. He helps her. She she he helps her kill a cop that's chasing her. 
and she he ends up following her to her like group of, of uh, revolutionaries, resistance fighters, terrorists to some. It depends on which side you're on, I guess. And he gets found out and he tells them he's friends with Tetsuo and then they're like, okay, maybe you can help us break in because we need to to uh, break those espers out so that we can find Akira, who is this very powerful being that can maybe help change the tides of their fight or whatever. It, I don't really know if they explain why they want Akira, but they know that he's very powerful and the espers can help them find Akira. Tetsuo, he is being experimented on, but also the other espers, they know that Tetsuo is very powerful and he's very angry, which makes him very dangerous. So they try to kill him with these, like, they like, control a, a teddy bear and a race car and a bunny rabbit and they try to kill him but they're afraid of blood for some reason so as they're trying to kill him he like steps on broken glass and they're like ew blood leave us alone and then he gets mad because they just tried to kill him so he tries to find them but now his powers are like very much awakened so as he's like trying to find them there's like orderlies and and uh, guards that are trying to stop him and he's just like turning them into human paste it's very graphic like he's he like looks at them and like moves his hand and explodes them we're, we're talking like 11 type powers like when she's like just killing people <laughs> exploding them canada is with the resistance group they break into the military base they get discovered there's an exchange of gunfire eventually canada takes this bike thing and goes with k and then they rush to find Tetsuo. Tetsuo finds the other espers. He's trying to kill them. There's a battle. Uh, Canada sees Tetsuo and is like, hey, we're here to rescue you. And he's like, I don't need rescuing. And then he like starts killing more soldiers. He doesn't kill any of the kids because he can read their minds and he can find out where Akira is. So he finds out where Akira is and he just flies away like a superhero or a supervillain. And Canada and Kay get arrested. Tetsuo goes on this like long walk towards Akira. Akira is beneath the stadium where they're building the, the they're going to host the Olympics at this time of year or at soon. And he's going to find Akira and kill him so he can be the most powerful being in the universe. And there's military trying to stop him because the colonel is being threatened to like be taken, has have his command taken away. So he forms a coup and he's like, all right, I'm in charge now. I'm going to kill this guy because he's going to destroy Tokyo again. Canada and Kay escape their, their prison because the espers know that Kay also has powers. So they're going to use her to fight Tetsuo. And they have this like Dragon Ball Z type battle. So Kay and, and Canada are kind of separated again. But Canada discovers that in Tetsuo's rage, he actually killed Canada's friend, uh, Yamagata. And he's upset, so now he's like, all right, I'm going to be the one that kills Tetsuo. He's gone too far. Uh, he, he gets to the, the Olympic Stadium or whatever. He has like this laser gun that is like the only weapon that can kind of hurt Tetsuo at this point because he's just like destroying tanks with his mind he's stopping bullets like neo 
but for some reason the laser gun is like dangerous to him. K isn't strong enough to fight Tetsuo, so he he beats her, but she's still alive. The military uses like a orbital laser to like strike him from space and it cuts off Tetsuo's arm. So he flies up to space, destroys the satellite, comes back down, rebuilds his arm as like a cyborg arm. And he discovers that Akira is actually already dead. He's just a pile of body parts. So he's like, all right, I guess I'm the most powerful person in the world. So I'm going to sit here in this Olympic stadium on this throne that I have made with my girlfriend, Kaori, who somehow has managed to get into the stadium through the protests and the military fighting the, the protesters and everything. The colonel gets to the stadium to try to assassinate Tetsuo. He finds out that the doctor has been monitoring Tetsuo's power the whole time, and he could have done something to stop it, but he didn't. So he's like, fuck you, scientist. I'm going to shove you in the ground and leave with my gun. He gets to Tetsuo, tries to kill him, but Tetsuo's way too powerful. He almost kills the the colonel but Canada arrives with his laser gun they have a little bit of a fight but Tetsuo's powers start to like go crazy his body starts to like it's gross it, it starts to like grow and there's all this like weird flesh coming out of him he's like becoming super sized he like absorbs Canada and Kaori and he's about to like crush them the espers, they see this happening. They're like, we got to stop this. They try to awaken Akira, who's just, as I mentioned before, a pile of body parts in tubes. Kaori is unfortunately crushed by the, the body mass that is Tetsuo. And he can feel her dying, which is really disturbing. Canada is almost crushed, but he turns on his laser gun at the last second and he's like, free from the, the mass and then the espers awaken Akira at the last second and Akira is a child much like them but he doesn't have like the gray old skin or whatever and he kind of takes Tetsuo away in like this I think they call it a singularity it's almost like the city's being destroyed again but it takes it takes uh, Tetsuo away Canada is in the in the blast as well, so he gets taken away. And the Espers, they see that Canada is, is in there. And uh, the, the boy from the beginning, he is like, well, he didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't deserve to die, too. So Takashi goes in there, and the rest of the Espers, they also go in to save Canada. Canada gets like this weird flashback of, of his life with, with Tetsuo when they were children. But he also sees the life of the Espers and Akira, how they were taken away as children and had these experiments done on them. And then something happened with Akira that made him destroy Tokyo. And then he is he's released, he's safe, Kei is safe, Kai is safe, the colonel lives, the doctor is killed by the, the event somehow, his vehicle explodes and crushes him. And Akira, Espers, and Tetsuo are all gone. They've, like, gone to a new universe. And it's, it's like, this little... I don't know what you call it. Like, a, 
a little ball of energy drops into Kaneda's hands and he like kind of like claps at it like like as like making a prayer almost and saying goodbye to his friend. And then he rides on his bike with Kai and Kay off to the rest of their lives in a newly destroyed Neo Tokyo. Yeah. A lot happens. A lot, a lot happens. of violence. A lot of violence. Like there's so much shit that's just happening to people that like they don't like I feel so bad for Kaori because everything that happens to her, I feel like she gets it worse out of everybody. Kaori is definitely she definitely gets it. I mean, they all it, they're all eating shit sandwiches like I think it's just a matter of who you're sympathetic to, because on one hand, you could say that Tetsuo gets it really bad. But the problem is Tetsuo is a shithead. Uh, for a large part of the movie, so you dislike him. But, I mean, in terms of, like, pure uh, physical torture, that that dude goes through some physical anguish. Oh, yeah. But Kaori Ka- oh, Ka- yeah. is definitely, like, at the end of, like, a lot of violence that she isn't even inciting, or she's just, like, along for the journey. And, yeah, she gets sexually assaulted, and uh, her boyfriend slash friend, it's kind of, you know, you know like, I guess they're an item. He crushes her to death. You know, and then you also even have to think about the espers, right? Like to kind of like mm-hmm. all their experimentation, kind of everything that they've gone through. Like, I'm sure oh, yeah. it's not because the medication that they're on has kind of uh, slightly disfigured them. So they're like children, but they've they've aged like years, decades. So it, I think that's part of it. It's there's so much anguish in this movie, so much. Uh, bad shit happening to everybody. Mm-hmm. Nobody really walks out happy. Not really. You know, even the characters don't really understand what's going on. And I think that's kind of why we finished the movie feeling the exact same way. Because Canada loses his friend, almost like a, a close brother. He One of his friends dies, and then another one turned into a, a blob. And goes into a new universe or dies. He doesn't know. Yeah. And you're surrounded by this city that is just absolutely demolished. How the fuck are you supposed to feel? <laughs> it's- I think it does have like a kind of bittersweet ending. Because, you know, they're they're riding off together, you know, to, to a new world. It's like the first time we've seen like a blue sky in the film. And I think that's the beauty of this movie is that it's all open inter- to interpretation because yet yeah, you could see it that way in the long run. I don't know how how happy of a ending this is. I think in it's, the end, there is something cyclical about the violence that's presented in the movie. Well, there is something that's different about the way this ends but and the way that it began. Right. Because in the beginning, when Akira exploded Neo Tokyo, the government continued the research on these espers. But by the end of this film, all those espers are gone. There's nothing yes. to experiment on. There's nothing to continue the cycle. Yes, you can say that. But there's nothing. I mean, and the people, I mean, that's the thing. People, a lot of the people that tried to manipulate the situation in their favor died. Right. But there's nothing to indicate that it, that's going to change. It's a cyclical violence where it's like you have mm-hmm. one politician, only another politician will replace them. Like it's, I mean, because right. it, it, even the it, doctor, it, right. The doctor that is in the film 
was a replacement for the doctors that died <laughs> at the beginning of the film. So they could yes. get a new doctor and maybe kidnap Kay because she has the Esper powers as well, right? Yes. In, to some degree. But I feel it, like we're kind of we're kind of left with like, okay, we get a new chance to do something. But given the nature of how cyclical the events are, maybe the same thing can happen again. And honestly, like you can't you could argue for or against, but the movie doesn't give you much more at the end to signify like the movie ends on like on a happy note. I think that's because of the movie, Uh, like the characters do ride across the city and Canada has his bike, no matter how janked up it is. But it is a purposely ambiguous ending because you can go in with your own ideology and think, well, this is what I think actually happens afterwards. And it's like, well, yeah, but you come from this background. I come from this different background and my way of thinking is very different from yours. And and that's what I meant by when I said, this is a real piece of art, right? Cause it's very ambiguous. It gives you a lot of dense text to kind of look through mm-hmm. and like, all right, make your own opinion. Like, what's the movie about? Where does the story go from here? It's very ambiguous and it allows you to kind of kind of come up with your own, use your imagination to think of where the story can go. Um, And yeah, the movie does end on a happy, somewhat happy note, but I mean... A lot of fucking people died. A, a lot, lot of people, people died. A lot of people suffered. You know, even mm-hmm. people that were innocent. Kaidi. Kaidi's one of them where it was like, this this girl did nothing wrong to anyone. And she got it probably, you could argue, worse than most people. Yeah, the guy in the beginning, like, he, he just, he got shot and died. Oh, yeah. But even in a hell of bullets, like, that was a miserable death, too. Like, he gets it bad. Kairi gets it bad. Tetsuo probably uh, just how his body is mutating. Yeah. It's so he, gross. What would happen to him, like, n- can never happen to anybody, right? So he's in some unimaginable amount of pain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and also the thing, too, though, is that he is an asshole. You could understand where he's coming from, but he's a, he's a huge prick. And part of me is like, yeah, fuck him up, Canada. So you don't entirely feel bad for him when, like, he loses his arm, you know, or his guts are spilling on the floor it's like eh, you kind of did this to yourself like you know yeah, i i did i do think he's a less sympathetic character yes but you gotta consider the world that he was born into yes he uh he has this like really huge inferiority complex which yes. is like well that's because he was adopted right and like the only thing that he could do is join this gang to feel a sense of family right and in this gang he's like not the strongest or not the best bike rider or anything so he's like i gotta prove myself to be in this group of ruffians so he has an over, he's overzealous in his like attempts to prove himself with violence and then he gets ultimate power and i, I there's this line that sticks out that stuck out with me it might be my quote, spoiler, but when uh, the the Esper that has the the psychic, like she can talk to people across the city, uh, Kyoko, Kyoko through through um, K tells Kanada, when you get this kind of power, whether or not you're ready, when you get this kind of power, you have to make a choice, and Tetsuo's already made his. 
it's not that he's an asshole for an asshole's sake. Like he is right. written very intently as someone who has been an underbruise and suddenly has this amount of power. Like, what does that do to someone? It's realistic. And yeah, the movie cl- very clearly say, like Tetsuo on multiple occasions says these quotes, like I'm, I don't, I no longer need protecting the day I'm here to protect you or like, uh, I'm no longer your punching bag. He has all these quotes that just kind of, he just flat out says like, I am not your bitch anymore. <laughs> I am mm-hmm. nobody's bitch. I am the top dog. I am at the top of the pyramid. Nothing can destroy me. I'm the one who knocks. <laughs> exactly. That does something to someone. Like it really does. And it's like you, like you quoted uh, uh, Walter White, like it changes people. So mm-hmm. even when I say that, uh, you know, Tetsu was being an asshole. Like, it, it's not just because it's bad writing or they're trying to make him a villain. It's like they're trying to make him a three-dimensional character. Like, he's kind of a shitbag. He's also a child. Like, don't don't get that mistaken. Like, he's, what, 17, 16? Not that far from Kyrie. He's also, essentially, he he's never had a family that supported him. The only one being Canada. But Canada isn't can't replace a father figure or a mother figure. Like... He's, he's not his parents. He's like his older brother. And you, obviously brothers are going to talk to each other very differently. So the movie makes makes a point of showing Tetsuo's background. So you understand where he's coming from. You may not agree with him. He may annoy you. But you can't say, oh, I don't get it. And it is interesting how easily fallible our opinions are of other people. Because, yeah, the whole movie, I was like, he's a, he's a shitbag. Like, I forgot what an asshole he was. And when you see him morph into this monstrosity at the end of the film, you're you feel bad for him. You're like, ah, it sounds like he's suffering a lot. And part of me yeah. is like kind of happy he is, but a large part of me is like, oh man, it's like too much. Yeah, like, it's like even even Canada, who's one of his best friends, was murdered in cold blood. Like, there's no reason for for Tetsuo to kill Yamagata. No, like no no real reason. It's not like Yamagata was was preventing him from going off to find Akira. No, Yamagata, he's, he's, I don't know even what he said. He's like, Tetsuo killed the, the drug dealer at the, the bar that they hung out. Yeah. And killed him because he wanted the drugs, which, well, I guess he needed the drugs because the drug, he didn't have the drugs from the military when he was in the kindergarten yeah. to, to help him with the pain, right? So he's in a lot of pain. He doesn't have any money. Right. So he gets goes to the bar, gets the drugs from the guy and the guy's like, well, these are really expensive. And Tetsuo is, is like, well, I'm not going to pay for them. And if you're a drug dealer and someone's not paying you for your drugs, you can't just be like, oh, that's all right. You know, so <laughs> there was a fight. Tetsuo won largely. Obviously, <laughs> the guy, he's got in total power. Right. And Yamagata is like, why did you kill this guy? And he's like, oh, you dare question me? Well, I'm going to kill you. Like, it, there's not a real reason for it. Like, I can understand why you didn't really have to kill the drug dealer if you're, like, invincible, right? You can just take it and be like, no, I'm not paying you. Go away. Psychic blasts you into the wall. But not you need to kill him. Didn't need to kill Yamagata. So Canada is upset with Tetsuo. He wants to kill him. He was shooting his laser gun to kill him. But when he saw how it, how much pain, 
how much pain Tetsuo was in. He was, he put his gun down because like this was no one should go through this, even though you killed one of my friends. Yeah, it's it, it is horrifying. And I think it's I think there is um, like those uh, when you get in an argument with a friend. Mm hmm. It's like because you love someone because when even when you're in an argument with someone you love like there is a chance that they go through something so horrifying that it just kind of reverts back to the way the relationship was which is like hey man I love you like okay let's just stop this like let's stop whatever's happening we, we're clearly taking things too far and in this scenario Tetsu is just morphing more and more bigger and bigger and it's hurting him and kind of they can't help but just be like oh my god like let's just stop this which mm -hmm. is which is a great it's a that that shows that the filmmakers did a good job of kind of mapping out these characters and kind of bringing them to this natural conclusion that, that you know they weren't going to die enemies they were going to die as friends and Canada trying to be there for Tetsuo Canada was going to go he was like he was you know the light uh, Akira's light was kind of swallowing up Tetsuo and Canada was on his way it wasn't until the espers go in and remove Canada and they sacrifice themselves you know, they're like, if we save him, we we are gone. And it's like they make the decision. So Connor was going to go with Tetsuo to the very end. And this discussion that we're having about Tetsuo and Kanada kind of goes to something that I said earlier in the first part. This movie doesn't really have like a main character. Like it follows Canada for most of it. The, the story doesn't strictly follow just him. The story follows a bunch of characters. It follows Tetsuo for a large part of it. But Tetsuo is one of the biggest antagonistic forces in a movie. So you would assume that the that the protagonist would be Canada. I, I don't think that uh, it, it's that much up to debate for who's the main character in this movie. Who do you think it is? Canada. Canada. Yeah. I think so. But even then. But what's interesting about the movie is that Canada doesn't isn't what we isn't like a typical hero. He's not like the Luke Skywalker that's like totally involved in everything. Like he doesn't really. Well, Luke Skywalker you know, wasn't totally involved in everything, was he? You know what I'm saying? The hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell. For the large part of the movie, Canada is just following Kay. And he's just saying, mm -hmm. he's just flirting with her. It's not until the very end when he's like, all right, he killed my friend. He killed our friend. Now I'm going to go after Tetsuo. Okay. You could also argue that Tetsuo is like the main character. He's just the main character that goes a little off the rails. Okay. On so if, if this is way more of an ensemble piece because we're following the Colonel for a large part of the film as well. Mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make is that it's not as clear cut where you're seeing all these different characters from these different from these different positions, different backgrounds, and just kind of seeing how they all collide. And it's not really focused on making Canada the hero of the day. Or the one that we philosophically lean on the most. Because even Canada doesn't know what to feel like at the end. I think that goes back to what I was saying. We don't really know how to feel about it because Canada doesn't. I guess he's happy that it's over. He's still alive. But what's the large takeaway? What's the large character takeaway that he has? It's really ambiguous. And I honestly, I do think that is a good thing about the movie. Because it just serves the, uh, it just serves the larger purpose of it. In the manga, it's a little bit more like like what you're saying. This was a manga, and the, the there's a huge there are big differences in the story. Uh, I like I barely talked about some of the other characters in this film, but they don't really do a whole lot, right? There's this this politician who's on like the board that's discussing what what to do with 
the situation, right? But he's actually bankrolling the resistance group. Mm-hmm. He plays a bigger part in the manga, and he, he plays like a little bit of a part in this movie. Like he has a few scenes, but like he dies, and none of the other characters like even know who he is. Yeah, he does allow for certain things to happen, but they don't even know who this guy is, right? <laughs> He he could totally like not be in the movie at all, and I don't. You would miss you would miss something, but the characters wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. There's the the Ryu guy, who is the like kind of the resistance leader, who is betrayed by Nezu, um, who doesn't really do a a lot in the film except be the leader of this resistance group, and go to Nezu for help and be betrayed. In mm-hmm. the manga, these characters have larger parts they're they're there throughout this interesting is the manga the midpoint of the manga is neo tokyo's destruction oh that's the middle the middle and so the laugh has is dealing with the the repercussions of what of what happened yes and how it how it is destroyed is a little bit different from how it happens in the film is it not a little it's very different <laughs> it's very different from how it happens in the film Oh, it's really interesting. interesting how how that how it changes. Like if there's six volumes of the book, right? The the series, Canada is not even in one of them. Oh, really? Yeah, they think he's dead. <laughs> oh, interesting. So they so they took a lot out of this story then. Oh yes, a lot out. And I don't mm. know if if they is a. I guess you could say they, because there's a lot of people that were responsible for making this film, but it was ultimately Otomo's decision on how to truncate the story into an anime feature film. Mm. Okay. Which we can get more into it at the end, I think. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like maybe because it was adapted from this story, certain elements of the hero's journey don't happen with Kaneda because it's taken from this other thing where he's not really the main character. He's just one of the, one of the characters. Yeah. Well, and that's what I mean by main character. Cause obviously like when you, when you think of like hero's journey, it's like a character that needs to learn something that they want this thing, but they actually need this. Canada doesn't really go through that. He's a gang leader and, and the guy that he's closest to in the gang gets to an, an accident and he starts exhibiting some mutations, some powers but for the large part, Canada is just like following K around. And it's not until the very end where he makes an active decision to say, all right, fuck Tetsuo. And then he makes right. another active decision to stop and to try to help him. Uh, but that's really the main takeaway from Canada that I could think yeah. of. It's he- really about just seeing all these kind of pieces and how they all fit together. And that's part of the intrigue as well. Cause you're seeing like the espers talk about Tetsuo. You're seeing Tetsuo going through this uh, change. You're seeing the Colonel just trying to keep the ball together with, in terms of everything, Tetsuo, the espers, the, the politics, um, the resistance, the riots that are happening. It's um, yeah, it's, it's really just like all these different moving parts. Uh, but Canada tends to be, like he tends to make to have the most screen time in the movie. So on that angle, you could say, oh, he's the main character because we spend the most time with him. It's like, yeah, you know, he's but- he's the main character, but he's not like he doesn't fit the archetype of the of yes. the hero's journey. Exactly. I, I think those are two 
I think being the main character and being the heroes of the hero's journey are two different things. But I can I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I just don't like the terminology that you're using. I feel like it's misleading. <laughs> it's semantics. It's that's it. We spend the most time with him. Right. But really, but, you know, he's he does get into like he does have the best bike. Right. Like when we, yes. when we see and his he has bike, the coolest shot in the movie, the coolest shot in the movie. He's in the, on the posters like he's the guy that does the impossible things. Right. Like when he's with the resistance fighters. Like they they would be dead without him. K-, K would be dead without him. This dude has no powers, and he's fighting the most powerful being in the world. And he's just on his bike, and he's putting up a fight. And he's putting he's putting up a better fight than the freaking military is. That is main Absolutely. character energy, if anything. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. That's he's very got, true. He's got the plottiest of armor. <laughs> 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 Yeah, and and he, and also to that point, he is a character that has the closest relationship to Tetsuo. Yeah. Because even at the end, there's the montage of Tetsuo and Kanata kind of coming together, kind of reliving that section of their life. Uh, So his closeness with uh, Tetsuo also makes him very important. Uh, But this isn't, it's not, this movie isn't structured like a regular movie quote in quotes right like it's not right a classic story and again i don't say this in a bad way i think it works really well for the story that they're trying to tell mm-hmm. this gigantic dystopian cyberpunk city that is just all corrupt all consuming and you're seeing it from different levels like um, i think if this was a, a weaker film it would this would this could be a bad thing it could make it yes. feel like it's unfocused but I feel like in the right hands, when you tell a story this way, it can make the world much richer. And like it, it is an emotional thing seeing him with his friend, right? If this movie mm-hmm. was super unfocused, that wouldn't that wouldn't mean anything. It'd be boring. And this movie is never boring. That's a good point, right? It's every story needs to be told in its appropriate manner. But not mm-hmm. everything's going to fit the same mold. Now, we use the same mold because it's a proven formula that a lot of people can relate to and it's a great way of telling stories but sometimes you don't need that sometimes you gotta kill your main character halfway through the movie or sometimes you gotta (laughs) you know not even really focus on the main character as much it's focusing on the people the main character interacts with k tetsuo and it works like it works you know right so much of the movie is happening without canada's like acknowledge he doesn't even know about half the stuff happening in the movie. Yeah. Like he doesn't know about the colonel's coup. He doesn't know about the espers controlling K. He doesn't know about Akira. I don't even think the audience really knows who Akira is. Not going to lie. I was like, how do all these people know who Akira is? Yeah. You know, it's kind of, you kind of have to like watch it again to see and listen to certain lines to figure out what Akira means to this world. I will say this, Kanada, you could argue, is not the hero, but he definitely is the main character. I would okay. make a point, though, that, like, if you wanted to, I could see a version of this movie existing where Tetsuo is, like, on the cover of the of the DVD. Like, he's the one that, yeah. like, he's got his cape, he's got his robot arm, right arm. He's on the cover of the of the poster. Uh, he's the one, because he looks, he, and he's doing the coolest stuff, too, though. 
Like when he goes up to Seoul, the satellite, and destroys it. <laughs> that's some Superman shit. That's evil <laughs> Superman shit. He's just an unlikable character. Yeah, he's he's a villain. He's a he, he, well, and and even then, I don't I don't feel right saying unlikable or villain because like like everything we said before, you know he mm-hmm. he's had a rough upbringing. Yeah, there's okay. There's one thing that I wanted to talk about and how the movie goes from like these moments of like really really graphic violence to like moments where you don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. When I say graphic violence, I mean like you can see the body parts and like if you pause the screen you can probably identify what body parts are falling from the ceiling. Mhm. You know what yeah, I mean? You're thinking about the you're thinking about the hospital ceiling, right? Yeah, the right? hospital. Right. Uh, yeah. There's there's a scene where uh Tetsuo imagines his guts falling out and like if you it's not just someone drawing like random gore. It's like, no, somebody, you know, is looking at an anatomy book and they're like, okay, I can draw this part falling out like this. And this part, it's, there's a lot of detail in there. And it's only for like a few, maybe a second of, of Tetsuo's like him hallucinating his guts falling on the, on the ground. Um, but I don't think you hear anything, right? There's no like, sound of of flesh hitting the like wet flesh hitting the the pavement it's silent the use of sound is interesting because yeah you'll Mm -hmm. go from these like really loud like percussion sounds these loud drums and then the movie will just stay silent and and the movie will cut out all audio during those instances of graphic violence Almost as if, like, just to, it, it almost just punctuates the violence. Right. Right. Like, they, instead, typically, like, in a movie, when the vi- the most violent, climactic moments come up, usually it's, like, a big, the music is swelling up and stuff. But here, everything just goes silent. And it just, you don't, you're just kind of, like, left. It, it, the movie isn't, like, glorifying it or making it right. feel cinematic. It's like, almost it doesn't just, like, feel good watching yes. these these things happen to people you know even tetsuo like how he goes out is not a satisfying thing to watch it it feels like man this is a terrible thing that's happening this is watching these people get crushed and exploded it's like oh my god no and also terrifying coyote just like the way she dies you can just feel like She's getting trapped. It's like, oh, my God, I know how this is going to end. And it's not good. And it ends how you expect it to. And you could just see her turn into uh, just a puddle of blood. But before before that, right, like because she's getting crushed before you and it's like a slow crush. So you can see like her ex- her face change in expression. And it's it's very hard to watch mm-hmm. if, you're, if they make it so you can't enjoy the violence. Yeah. Right. It, it's it's not like it's satisfying some like, uh, I don't know, gore kink, you know, it's well, it's not the, it's not like it, that. It's funny because I always use uh, I use uh, Django Unchained as like a, an example of violence that like is really satisfying to watch. Right. Like there's a there's a Candyland shootout. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
in the middle of the movie, there's this big giant shootout and it's funny and it's super cathartic and it's super right. violent. And I love that. I'm like, this is, ex- yes. this is a gore fest that is meant to be, uh, not fright. You're not, you're not scared of the violence. If anything, you want mm-hmm. more of it. And I think it works in that particular film, but this is one of those examples of violence. That's very like, um, just visceral. Right. In your face, and it, and you know, Otomo just kind of takes the, the fun out of it, right? Removing the music by seeing the people like suffering. Funny enough, it reminds me of of uh, Star Wars because we gotta mention Star Wars every time we talk about a movie. <laughs> from from what from what Star Wars? When Obi Wan he senses that the Death Star has destroyed Alderaan. It's like a, a millions of voices crying out at once and then s- suddenly stopped. Mm-hmm. It's it's oh. like, damn, that like those I never really you never really think about the people on Alderaan as they died, you know, mm-hmm. but something about the way he says that line. It's like he he could sense all those people suffering in a way that was unimaginable to them because with the power of the Death Star is like unimaginable to the rest of the galaxy, right? It's like this big secret. So they're seeing this thing that's happening and they're terrified and they're, they know there's nothing that they can do. And then they're just gone, just completely silent. And I'm watching the beginning of the movie. You kind of see that in that explosion there. And we kind of see that in the rest of the film as these, these horrible acts of violence happen. And then it's just quiet and just Mm -hmm. left to sit with that. I think it, it, when it gets to that graphic and the movie's very graphic, right? And it doesn't always use a silence to that effect, but it knows when to when to when to have the silence, right? When to keep the audio because mm-hmm. they're like, you know, when Tetsuo is transforming, you'll hear like his like his yelling and screaming. You hear you hear Kairi's uh screaming as she dies. Uh so the movie doesn't take the science away from that, but it, it kind of knows like when to use it and when not to. And when um, Tetsuo and Akira travel to the next dimension, that silence comes back in and the explosion, the actual explosion that results from that is silent as well. So this is someone who's like, who knows how to punctuate a scene by having amazing music, but also when taking it away and taking just all sources of audio that I don't think a lot of people really use. Don't even really think about it. Most mm-hmm. movies will just go straight forward with, this is what the real world sounds like, and we're just going to go with that. And this is someone who's using every tool at their disposal to communicate something to the audience, whether it's great anguish by having diegetic sound or removing all sound entirely and letting you sit with the horror that's happening on screen. That's a great sign of great directing right there. Absolutely. I wanted to say that the audio is really good in places. Like they, they put a lot of production value into uh, the sound effects, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I think the the sound of Canada's bike is very, Ooh, yeah. very cool. Like the bike is so cool. thought the bike was cool like even before i even watched the anime i was like like the i don't know what what that side of you is like you know what gundam is right 
Yeah. Big robots fighting. But the messaging of, of Gundam is very anti-war. Right? They're, they want to show you that war is a bad thing. But look at how cool these mechs are. Look how yeah. cool these Gundams <laughs> are. So much of that franchise is based off of the sales of the toys. Of the things. Mm-hmm. And then like there's just the culture of people like building them and painting them and stuff. But the message is anti-war. Right. So yes. in, in, in Akira, right, I feel like it's also kind of like, hey, these things that are happening are kind of bad. Like they're really bad. This world is terrible and all these people are sad or dying. But this bike, though, look at how cool and shiny it is. You know, <laughs> no, it is. I don't know what to make of it, but it's it's a thing that exists in. In uh, oh, Robocop as well. Oh, yeah. Like, they, they made a franchise off of RoboCop. But, like, the things that happen in RoboCop's world are bad. RoboCop's, like, existence is not a good thing. Yeah. But, damn, he's, he's got a gun on his leg. Look at that. <laughs> and he does the little turn thing. He flips it over, you know? He doesn't flick it. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's, that's pop culture, man. I mean. It is pop culture. That it, it, Like, it's just... <laughs> You know, like with Gundam, it's like, yeah, we're anti-war, but it's like, yeah, but those mechs are cool, though. It's like, okay, yeah. And th- that's just always going to happen. It is. Uh, but the bike is cool. And I'm even I like the bike even before I saw the movie because there was a poster of it, like uh, of uh, Canada walking to it. And you're like, oh, shit, that's a cool bike. I, I had for the longest time I had a, a cell phone case that was Speed Racer, but it was the Mach 5, uh, like how Canada's bike is in the poster. And he, it's Speed Racer walking to it. Do you remember? Um, yeah, like it, it's it's too iconic. You there's, can't. A, there's a Barbie one too, where like Barbie's walking to her car or her her pink bike or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, so you can't get away from that. It's, that's why I. That's why Akira is so good because it has a lot of cool stuff in it, but it also has a very profound effect on you when you watch it it's not like oh it's not just a bunch of cool shit happening it's actually kind of sad and deep you could argue that's why akira has aged so well because mm-hmm. it's deep there's a lot to it it's dense but it's also just fucking cool like the compositions the animation the drawings the design the beats that it hits you know, even just seeing Tetsuo, like, transform, you know, is cool. Like, it's it's fucked up, don't get me wrong, but it just looks cool. Right. The design of the hand, when he's mutated. Like, it's just a, it's just cool. Like, all of this. The way like, he hell, builds can... his arm back from, like, after it's cut off, he, like, reassembles it. You can, like, I watched this YouTube video of this guy saying you can, like, slow slow it down and identify the pieces that he's using to rebuild his arm because there's so much detail in this movie, not just in the gore, but in everything, the way his uh, Canada's bike looks, all the stickers are real companies. Uh, the, like I said, the pieces that assembled. Oh, Canon. Canon was Cannon. on there. I recognize Canon. Yeah. A lot of brands are on there. <laughs> a lot of brands. Yeah. That's it's, funny it's how like the cool- coolest thing in the movie is the thing that has the most corporate sponsorship. The bike. The bike. But he did steal it, so it's, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. 
It's a thing that I'm noticing. I don't know how to feel about it, but I like it. You can't help but want to you want to think about it. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think it's very hard for someone to just watch it casually and just be like, "All right, time to go watch Norbit." You know, like it's <laughs> it's something that's like ah, even if you're even if you're not like critically thinking about it, like I'm gonna write an essay about it. You can't help but like that night later that night just think about like, oh man, that was cool. That was weird. You, you're not on Twitter, huh? No, 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 or no, 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 no. We, it's not Twitter anymore, Austin. It's I'm not calling it that. I'm not calling it. No, that. it's very it's, stupid. There's only one guy that's really earnest about. It. Hey, you call it this now? And that dude sucks. <laughs> that dude sucks. Anyway, there is this a blue check that said bad art makes you feel weird, and it's been at least in my Twitter circles, everyone's been making fun of him for saying that. What does that mean? Bad art makes you feel weird. He was trying to make a list of what makes good art from bad art. And on his chart is how good art, how art makes you feel. Bad art makes you feel weird. Good art makes you feel hopeful. This is a stupid list. It's, oh, it's bad. I, yeah, no. Okay. I kind of see what you're getting at. It's kind of stupid to even just insist on what art is supposed to make you feel like it's, it's, it's an interpretation. It's a process. It's an exhibition it's uh, it's a lot of things. So to say that good art does this, it's like I guarantee you, I could find ten movies that will that are that are considered good that do the opposite, and that's just movies. Yeah. Then you're you're talking about actual paintings. You're talking about music. You're talking <laughs> about video games. You're talking about pe- books, poems. It's like why are you condensing something that's so abstract into something that's like I I just I, that's it's annoying. It's dumb. It's really and I, annoying. And I, and I know I do it too sometimes. Like I'm trying to make a point or I'm trying to explain it as best as I can. But that's just like, this is what good art is. It's like good art could be a lot of things. It can and be a lot of things. weird doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean it's a bad thing. David Lynch is weird. David Lynch, so weird. He's my favorite director. Yeah. And to, to us, he's good weird. But to my mom and dad, bad weird. But <laughs> but Yeah, my dad hates my dad hates David Lynch. I guarantee you, if uh, if my parents watched David Lynch, they'd be like, I don't know what that was about. I don't get it. So, yeah, it's very <laughs> that whole thing is like not every person thinks the same. Right. Stupid. Ugh. Something I want to talk about was just the tools that that Otomo used to kind of create this beautiful fucked up world. This is a hand drawn movie, so they have to draw everything. Right. And. It's kind of interesting when you have to draw 24 frames a second, you know, kind of the things that you'll notice and pick up on. And some, watching this movie, I was like, oh, my God, like, why is this such a good looking movie? Right. And mm-hmm. part of it is it has the cyberpunk aesthetic, which I, I love a lot. Blade Runner, mm-hmm. like uh, cyberpunk 2077. Like, I don't like that <laughs> game, but I like driving through it. <laughs> You bought that game because you thought you were going to get a Blade Runner-like world. Yes. Akira is already cool because it had it takes place in this environment that I really like. But, like, the way it replicates, like, the neon signs of Tokyo, you know, mm-hmm. neon signs, the flicker of the of the lights, the way, like, w- one of the cool coolest details in this movie was the light that's coming from the bikes as they're riding through the city in the very mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen something like that before. Well, it looks almost like lightning is coming from the bike. It's like a, a trace almost. Yeah. 
And it's so cool. And that's a detail that they didn't have to put in. And it doesn't even really come into the rest of the movie. But for that little scene in the very beginning where they're chasing the gang, it's awesome. Like the way that different light sources are drawn, right? Like the headlights from cars can almost be blinding. The the skylights shooting lights into the into the top of the city where it, it looks like a party. But down in the bottom, you've got the neon flickering lights that are grimy. And you've got this like giant weapon called soul, which is sun, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's blinding. I, I don't know. Like just that little detail of how they animated the lights where it's like and, and this isn't my original. This isn't like my I, full disclosure. This isn't my opinion like this. This was something that I watched someone else talk about years ago, even before I watched the movie, this YouTuber. And I was like, well, I don't really, like, get what he's talking about because I hadn't seen the movie yet. But then watching the movie and kind of seeing it, it's... And he's making the point that's, like, it's very easy to use audio and lighting to replicate that as if we're watching something in the real real world. But it's another thing to take those things and make them your own, Mm -hmm. right? And really do something with them to carry motifs and symbols and themes and watching this movie is like wow a lot of thought went into what's how's the light going to react what's it what's it doing to a character you know and i think that also lends to just the movie feeling just vivid and rich yeah i think it's like the beginning of the movie is pretty important you're sitting down you're you're like okay what am i what am i watching here and immediately you get this explosion and then you get these these like crazy lights and shit and this the futuristic world that's also very dirty and then you get this bike chase and the the way that the bikes are animated and the way it sounds and everything it it plays a big role into your audience's engagement cuz you want your audience to like go with you for the rest of the movie right so starting it with this action action-y scene it really pulls you in and it will make you accept the more like heady thoughtful stuff that happens later on in the film i really like the 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 tracing of the the motorcycles like when you when the motorcycle goes from like screen left to screen right you'll see the the bike with its lights and then there's almost like a like a phantom light that follows it like a a trace I i don't know if that makes sense if i'm using that word correctly it's almost like the light has a tail. Yeah. It's just cool, man. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just the, the little details, right? The way the movie was animated, the way it was written, the way it was scored and sounded. Like, it's just like little things that, little unconventional things that when you bring them all together, it just feels like something different, right? Let's move on to what we think the movie is saying. And then we'll talk about how it was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the one where I did the bulk of the research uh, for myself okay. um, because I was really because, you know, I was even talking to Austin like Barbieheimer was a big thing, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer. And I saw Oppenheimer in theaters uh, and, you know, like I already had nuclear weapons, like thinking about it in my head. And we decided to talk about Akira, you know, an anime that starts off with like a big explosion that throws the world into world war three and there's a and i knew because i'd seen the movie before that it ended as well so i'm like there has to be something there some connection between uh the bomb 
the bombing of Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 to what this movie is talking about. Mm-hmm. And there are some interesting interpretations from that because that's one possible reading of the film. Uh, and that was kind of like what I went into when I was thinking about this movie. Who represents what and what is it trying to say? And it's varied <laughs> from yeah, going like a lot of things, isn't there? Yes, because there's a there's a lot of ways that you could interpret it, right? Like, for example, one of the one of the things that the movie deals with is kind of an inept government, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ineptitude of the government, the corruption that comes with it. But that also like and that could be seen as a critique on the government, on the imperialism of Japan at the time that led that led the people of Japan into World War II, right? Right. Because it was and, there in, in the film. It is the government's research on these espers, these yes. beings with immense power. And they did too much and destroyed Tokyo. It was a Japanese government that led Japan into World War II. And there was some critique as to against that government, right? And it says in this article, Akira and the Spectre of Nuclear War. In the years leading up to World War II, the totalitarian Showa regime sought to crush opposition with executions and political assassinations across the, across Japan. Control was seized from political parties and distributed among admirals and military leaders, introducing a period of hyper-nationalism. This political climate ultimately paved the way for Japan's involvement in the war. Military failures and government corruption are rife in Akira. Before the rise of Tetsuo, Neo-Tokyo is a fascist state. Processors are violently suppressed by militaristic police force in the opening scenes. This ineptitude of Colonel Shikishima's military aggravates the tumultuous situation during Tetsuo's rise to power, with a military coup ultimately handing control of the capital to Tetsuo's gang of religious zealots. So there's already that angle uh, that you could look into. Right. Like where you could see how the film makes this commentary on politicians versus what really what what actually happened in Japan pre-war uh, World War Two. Mm-hmm. Another angle is the the children in the film, the Tetsuos and the Canada's versus the children in Japan. So, again, from the article in the aftermath of the bombings, hundreds of Japanese orphans were relocated to China, essentially abandoned by the incompetent Japanese government. The concept of a lost generation is apparent in the hidden world of Takashi, Masaru, and Kiyoko, a childhood grotesquely destroyed by the experimentation of the government. The children of the Akira program were prematurely aged in appearance, forced to grow up much faster than their peers due to the policies of a self-interested and reprehensible government. So you're talking about the children that were, you know, you're talking about the espers, right, that were misled, experimented on by the government, but you also have the generation of kids that lost family members, fathers in World War II, and lost their homes that were homeless because of the bombings in Hiroshima and mm-hmm. Nagasaki. A movie that deals with that is Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, which also came out this year. The yeah. year that Akira came all, out. That's shown through the entire generation of kids. There's the entire scene in the school where you've got these kids yeah. that are forced to go to school to try to learn a day trade and these kids just don't care. Some of them don't even have parents. They're homeless. They're orphans. They've been put into the into the system, which is very abusive. Like the the principal there just goes and like 
slaps all of them on the face. I wouldn't feel good learning to a trade to contribute to that world where like it's okay for someone to just go around slapping kids. Yeah. And there are these kind of references that are just like to Japan, right? Some that are really interesting because they're not all just they're not like, oh, this is the definitive take on the movie. I'm just going through a few examples just to kind of get you thinking about this. Did you do much on the, the bike gangs? Because that, that is part of the, the lost generation, right? Mm-hmm. The the Bo, Boso Zoku gangs. In, in Akira, Canada leads the biker gang called the Capsules, right? We see them battle the clowns on the streets of New Tokyo. And this is actually a thing that happened in Japan after the bombings. There were these gangs of like kids on really tricked out bikes. They're called Bosozoku, which kind of translates to like violent running tribe or something like violent vehicle group or something like that. The translation is not like exact. Um, Mm -hmm. But at first, the gangs are mostly formed of these returning displaced veterans of the war. And the gangs eventually became associated with like these disgruntled youth of the working class. And the automobile industry was crippled. So they took the motorbikes and they made them, they tricked them out. They made them really loud. They modified the mufflers. They had custom paint jobs, exaggerated frames on the bikes. And they had this like really distinct and colorful aesthetic. They had, this is from High Snobriety, which is I guess a fashion website. They had a uniform known as the Tokufuku whose literal translation is special attack clothing. It is an elaborate embroidered jumpsuit inspired by manual labors and World War II kamikaze pilots. The assault suits are adorned with personalized slogans, gang logos, kanji, and, for some reason, imperial flags, denoting the intricacies of the membership and allegiances. The suits are worn open to reveal bandaged torso, so you have, like, these... Like these open jackets revealing your your body, but like your torso is bandaged, which I think is supposed to mean that you're hard, right? Like you're you're a tough guy. Uh, you're they're accompanied with baggy pants and tall military boots. Bosozoku were they would often have accessories like headbands, bearing slogans like "Police be damned" or "Bring it on," round sunglasses, surgical masks, ear earrings, uh, tasuki sashes. And they, for some reason, were into, like, pompadour, permed, rockabilly-style hair, which I think you kind of see in some anime in the 80s. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the bully from Yu Yu Hakusho. He's got, like, this really 50s-style hairdo, but he's, like, a tough guy. They also had, like, crazy dyed hair, and they were known to be violent. They were armed with wooden swords, bats. Japanese imperial Japanese flags. Do you know what those are? No. Oh, so the Japanese flag is like the white flag with the red circle in it. Mm-hmm. The imperial flag, which is the kind of flag you would see when you're the Japanese army is invading your country, is the same red circle, but there's like sun rays coming from it that reach to the oh. ends. That flag has been discontinued because it's like a symbol of imperial Japan. And I, I believe these... I don't think these bikers were nationalists. You know, I don't think that they thought Imperial Japan was a good thing. But they were angry at society. 
and society doesn't like this flag anymore, so they're going to wear the flag, I guess. Also, they felt like they were strong, right? So like, oh, what's the symbol of strength? This flag. This is what the soldiers wore when they invaded other countries, right? So I don't know. I don't know why they do it. If somebody knows, let us know. This is what they did. They wore this flag around. They hit hit cops with it. <laughs> they had co- Molotov cocktails, attacked police, foreigners, and other motorists. But I think there were a lot of Korean people that joined these gangs too. So I don't know like what kind of foreigners they're talking about. I feel like they were, they were against like Americans in their country. Like they, they were against the... ANPO, I think it was called, like the American-Japanese Treaty, whatever, where the military, American military was in Japan. I don't know. But they, they saw their peak in the 80s, and then the gangs died down due to laws against reckless driving. Uh, you got a harsher penalty for driving in a, or riding in a big group. The price of motorcycle parts went up, so they, they couldn't afford to trick out their motorcycles anymore, so they adopted to motor scooters instead. Um, that's, that's a little bit on the motorcycle gangs of Japan that was in the Japan that Otomo grew up in. So he grew up with all this stuff happening. Well, and that's that's a cool way of incorporating them into the film because they, because mm-hmm. they really started, they were really around after World War II, right? After the droppings of the bomb? Yeah, they were around after World War II and then they kind of, they were these old pilots that were like displaced from society. And then it became like this youth group of the, these, mm-hmm. the disgruntled displaced youth. And they would feel empowered riding on these tricked out bikes that were kind of like an extension of themselves mm-hmm. with their like battle armor, which is like their, their suit that they wore. And that's exactly what Canada does. Or that's what the, that's what the gangs do. Yeah. He's, He's got the caps. His gang's called the capsule, so he's got like this giant capsule on his, the back of his, uh, his jacket. His jacket that matches his motorcycle, as mm-hmm. does Tetsuo's bike matches his outfit. Like, and when they ride around, they they feel powerful. Oh yeah. Like they don't ever reach that level of power, except for Tetsuo when he becomes god, basically. Um. They don't ever reach that power again. When they're not on their bikes, even the girls are like, these guys are boring. These guys don't, don't have their bikes. They're not worth hanging out. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. She had that line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. it's The bikes are awesome. But that's a cool inclusion. Something I wanted to talk about was kind of Tetsuo and what he means for the grand story. Because there's a few interpretations, but two of the most popular ones that I saw so this person says from uh, from this first article that as he as his powers grew, uh, some of the mutations that he kind of goes through, some of the pain is almost symbolic of like the, the some of the P- Japanese survivors that had major exposure to radiation. Right. Mm. As Tetsuo's power grows, his body explodes with extreme hideous mutations, an exaggerated version of the thick, incurable keloids that developed on many survivors of the nuclear blast. These rubbery tum- tumor-like lesions grew uncontrollably across the skin, becoming instant signifiers of the Hebakusha, a stigmatized group who were perceived to have been corrupted by radiation. Fear and suspicion of the Hebakusha led to sufferers of these mutations to be ostracized from the rest of Japanese society. 
This link between isolation oh, wow. and mutation is mirrored in Tetsuo's descent into madness. His physical disfigurements worsen as his relationship with Canada and Kay breaks down. And the uncontrollable power within him takes hold. Right? Uh, which makes which makes sense, obviously. It, it says exaggerated version, but, I mean, obviously, that's, what, that's one interpretation. The other is actually Tetsuo representative of Japan as a whole. Right? So there's this other article called uh, Akira is Afraid of Nukes. And in the bottom of the section, the interpretation goes, or it says, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the uh, the end of the war, the Japanese reconsidered their position in the world. The U.S. occupation stripped the once mighty empire of its autonomy. Japan's transition to a Western-style democracy happened quickly. The country underwent an industrial renaissance. For some Japanese, these changes were jarring and opened a generational gap between those who'd lived through the war years and those who had not. Thematically, Tetsuo's story closely parallels Japan's development. With with his new abilities, Tetsuo becomes an egomaniacal and and unstable. He's desperate to emulate and surpass Kaneda in strength and intellect. By the end of the film, Tetsuo's power has grown beyond his control. He becomes a mass of mutated flesh and machine reminiscent of the deformity suffered by atom bomb victims. When Tetsuo's abilities reach their apex, Akira, the esper responsible for the initial blast that destroyed O Tokyo, reawakens and in the process of destroying New Tokyo, assimilates Tetsuo. So there's kind of talk up there about uh, some of the arrogance that Japan might have potentially felt, but also some of the downfall that the nation felt as a whole and kind of where to go after the war. Those are two different readings, but they're interesting because they kind of are directing the imagery and the events of the dropping of the bombs to what happens in Akira, right? Mm-hmm. This is the final point I'm going to make. I went in with the first, in the first part, talking about how I wanted to see how Akira goes back to the bombings, right? That was just the natural leap that I went two right mm-hmm. obviously there are two bombings in the film to fit to two nuclear bombs dropped on japan it's interesting because then i found another article that made an interesting point it kind of calls out what i was doing it says um akira's resistance to interpretation while the ability to read akira as an attempt to reckon with the trauma of, Nag- of the nagasaki and hiroshima bombings is compelling and in some cases productive, various theories have remarked that Otomo's film may be up to something different. As Bolton explains, it is society's strong need for a point of origin which allows for the theory that films like Akira are dealing with traumatic past experiences to hold water. What people want is a big bang from which all else springs, something to satisfy this strong desire for an origin or an explanation. For Bolton, this search foreign origin should be avoided or at least should be highly scrutinized. The idea that a decisive origin has been found, Bolton claims, results in a closing off of more complex or even more productive interpretation of such films. And while the idea that Akira is born from the trauma of atomic bombings is certainly compelling, many theorists remain convinced in their core contention that Akira is a text about the unreliable function of language itself. Hence, while Akira may indeed be argued to contain anti-war imagery, and it is easy to draw parallel between the story, the art, and the atomic bombs, 
it is important to keep in mind that in many ways, Akira purposefully works to undermine unitary meaning. Bolton's analysis of Akira shows how the various political movements that undergrid the film's plot, the coup led by Colonel by the Colonel, the resistance movement, the cult that worships Akira, all harken back to various political movements of Japan's past. It is in this amalgamation of various political movements within the film that causes theorist Isadel Standish to call the film's politics pastiche. This pastiche of historical context, according to Standish, works to rob the elements within Akira of any historical context. Hence, Akira's use of pastiche disturbs the stable ground on which an origin or transcendent meaning rests. Basically, in short, right? <laughs> I get what it's saying. Is that, you know, when when there's an event, we always try to go back to what happened, what led to it. Why did this person murder this person? Where is this, this coming from coming from? Oh, Akira is a way for Otomo to deal with uh, any of the suffering that Japan went through because of the, bomb, the dropping of the bombings. And that and that is true. But it also potentially robs the film of any other meaning that it might be making. Making about Japan's history before the bomb, maybe about where it could go from here, right? It keeps us blind from any other possible interpretations that... Me, personally, I am too pigeon-held on the dropping of the bombs that I'm not even paying attention to. And we're talking about Tetsuo, we're talking about the, the biker gang, we're talking about all these different aspects and how they relate to Japan during World War II. And they're all interesting, and that's what the article says, but it's also important to not just pigeon-hold ourselves to this, right? And this is just a larger point about art in general, Right? trying to see at the grander point that they're trying to make. Maybe maybe this is him dealing with the trauma from World War II, or it could be him just making comments about some other different things. But I thought it was just interesting going down this rabbit hole of, oh, Tetsuo represents this, and Canada represents this, and and the Japanese industrialists with the bikes and the government, and, you know, here's how the colonel relates to all this, and then reading an article that's like, eh, Maybe, but there's so many different ways to interpret this movie. So how do you interpret it? With the way I interpret things, mostly art, I go to um, what makes the most sense. What makes sense to you then? Now, having read that article, having read that excerpt and kind of rethinking about the movie, I'm like, well, golly, I don't really know now. Because I went in so eager to talk about the bombs that I kind of, in a way, almost shut myself off from any other possible interpretation. You know, you have espers that are able to use telekinesis and have these abilities, these godlike abilities. And Akira, in order to save Tetsuo, gives him a merciful death or transports him to another dimension. I don't even know what to make of that. And... It it's both kind of frustrating and exciting <laughs> because it's frustrating because I just I felt like I was pigeonholing myself that I wasn't giving this movie as fair of a shot and that not just with this movie but potentially other movies I've kind of been um choosing the easy way out. But is it it is also exciting because I do want to rewatch this movie now and kind of just Okay. Okay, so I have that reading. 
Well, else I, can I think I get? that there there's you know a work of art like this can be interpreted in other many ways. Um, mm-hmm. And to look, I think maybe to look at everything as a, well, that's because of the bomb, right? Like maybe that's a mistake, but like the bombing affected people in a lot of different ways. And the, the circumstances in which the country was bombed in the first place is another thing. It is about a lot of things. Uh, so I do agree with that. Like you shouldn't just look at it through one lens. You should kind of look at it as like a bigger thing. Thinking about how I watch movies and kind of how we go about it. And even as someone who tries to go in with with an open mind, not really trying to pigeonhole a movie to doing what I think it needs to do, because I would have done it this way or we may, may make some most sense. Even I still have trouble with that because I went in so eager to just look at this one point that I could have potentially missed a dozen other points that the filmmaker was trying to get at. Okay, well... I, when I think about like what a movie means, sometimes, you know, especially if it's a foreign film, maybe from a culture that I don't know a whole lot about, sometimes I have to kind of like look and see what the creator, what they what kind of world they were living in, you know, like what made them make this movie? Maybe that'll help make sense of what I'm supposed to feel about this. Sometimes I, I, I feel like some things can have multiple meanings, you know? Akira is very dense. I don't think there's like one thing that the movie's about, except for maybe how we deal with the concept of power. Because everybody in this movie is looking for power, right? Is that safe mm-hmm. to say? Everybody in this movie is looking Absolutely. for power? Yeah, 100%. Uh, and what to do with the power, right? And I think that's the main thing that the movie's about. And, you know, given that the film starts with a new what looks like a nuclear explosion. Now this power is in the world. What do we do with it? Which I don't think very many movies about this concept tackle. Like Godzilla, right? Godzilla is probably the most famous example of uh, nuclear power being released into the world. Mm -hmm. It's this destructive force that we have to come together to stop. In this movie, some people are trying to stop it. Some people are trying to control it. And this power does kill a lot of people. But at the very end of the film, it creates a new world. And that, in that new world, it's a blank slate. It is a, a new beginning. And maybe that beginning can be better than the world that existed before. Because as a film, I, I think there's something that's lost in translation with how... Japanese in Japanese there's multiple ways to say I right like I am sad right I am happy in English we say I use I but in Japanese the word you use for I can can tell you a little bit about the person watashi is kind of like the formal like oh yeah that's um just a normal way to say it's formal everyone can use it you can say ore which is like oh that dude that's a tough dude you know Boku, that's like, oh, it's like a masculine boy saying, saying something, right? Or, or someone who exhibits masculine energy, but it's like not as harsh as ore. Throughout the film, Tetsuo, he uses ore because he's a tough guy, right? But the very end of the film, Tetsuo says, Boku wa Tetsuo, I am Tetsuo. But he, he uses a different way to say I this time. 
it's like a gentler way of saying I. So maybe this, in spite of all the destruction that this new power has um, created, maybe moving forward, we can build something better. The hope to move forward to a place that's better. Absolutely, yeah. And it, it's, or not uh, as violent, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> potentially, right? Which could lead to that like bittersweet ending, right? Like that, um, mm-hmm. like there's a cleansing in the world. I mean, it's still ambiguous, so there's no like clear answers. But you know, uh, I think it's hinted at in the beginning of the movie that the dropping of the that the explosion causes World War Three, right? Yes, but it doesn't really feel like we don't really a- know what happens in a World War Three, though. Like how? Okay, so there's something exploded. So then, what happened? World War Three happened. What does that mean? Did somebody? Did Japan think that America bombed them again and then went to war? The movie leaves that ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, but at the end, it doesn't really seem like they're headed into war. At least that's you could interpret right. it. That it doesn't. Way. It doesn't feel like it is. Yes. It does feel like a very hopeful ending because of the music, because of how Kaneda says. Tetsuo's name and how he like clasps onto this like energy ball thing that falls softly from where everything awful happened you know it feels more hopeful yeah it's open-ended but you kind of know the feeling of what's what you're supposed to feel right Mm -hmm. like if if there was like if there was like if Tetsuo had like a henchman or something and like the last shot of was like his henchman like clasping clasping on to like Tetsuo's cape or something, you know, oh, it's all going to happen again because now this guy is going to take the mental, like we're not explicitly told that, but because we're media literate people, we see that and we can make that interpretation. Oh, this guy's going to try to do the same thing again. Like in the end of the Watchmen, the original comic book series, when you see that journal wind up in like the right wing, um, journalist news organization you know what's going to happen you know that oh the truth is going to get out and it'll all be for nothing that's the implication it doesn't need to be explicit for us to know how we're supposed to feel absolutely but i do think that we shouldn't like um interpret every single action in the film to mean this one thing right i do feel like there's an answer and i do feel like the answer isn't as important as how you get there and the other things that are happening in the film. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. Which, which, is it's- the, which is the whole point of of this movie, you know, and that's partly the purpose of cinema, to do that, mm-hmm. right? Clearly, the people behind this movie had goals and ambitions, and they wanted to make one of the best anime films of all time. And I think they succeeded in large part. I think so too. But let's talk. As someone who doesn't see a lot of anime movies, <laughs> let's so. talk about the guy who made this thing. All right, Katsuhiro yes. Otomo. Katsuhiro Otomo was an artist. He isn't. He's still alive today. He's an artist. Uh, he was known for making a lot of cool animes or mangas in in the past, and he even got to work on this feature film called Harmageddon, which. I've heard is not that good, but it does have a lot of interesting ideas and very beautiful artwork that he was kind of responsible for bringing the the tone to. So the original Harmageddon manga that the movie was based off of was more like child 
like. It was more family friendly, like more for kids. But when he got in, he put his pen to paper. It got a little bit more realistic, a little more like, oh, man, that's that's kind of scary. What's what's happening here? It, it was about like psychic warriors fighting demon dragons. <laughs> he, he likes to deal with a lot of psychic stuff. Okay. It's not the only psychic thing he worked on. He worked on this um, manga series called Fireball. And Fireball, he did not get to end it the way he wanted it to. He was kind of frustrated about that. He was kind of frustrated with how Harmageddon was going. He worked on this thing called Domu, which is about an apartment complex where these people keep committing suicide. And I don't know if it's a spoiler or not, but there's psychics involved and there's two psychics in the apartment complex, and one of them is making these people commit suicide. It was actually oh. almost adapted into a live-action film. Do you want to guess who was directing it? Who? One guess, and I bet you you'll be right. Oh, David Lynch! <laughs> David Lynch was going to direct this thing. <laughs> David Lynch was going to direct a movie from the guy who wrote Akira. That would have been so cool. It would have been so cool, but it did not happen, unfortunately. Some plans fell through. Um, but so when yeah. he made, he started writing Akira in 82, he was determined that he was going to end this thing the way he wanted to end it. He was interviewed by this, um, by Stephanie Bio, Biogin of Kaboom, February to April 2016 issue of Energy Concentration Honesty. The making of Akira in the words of Katsuhiro. So she asks him, how was Akira born? And he says, I wanted to draw this story set in a Japan similar to how it was after the end of World War II. Rebelling government factions, a rebuilding world, foreign political influence, an uncertain future, a bored and reckless younger generation racing each other on bikes. Akira is the story of my own teenage years rewritten to take place in the future. I never thought too deeply about the two main characters as I made them. I just projected how I was like when I was younger. The ideas naturally flowed out of my memories. She asks him about the political message of Akira. And like all artists do, they're like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really funny clip of David Lynch talking about Eraserhead. And he's like, Eraserhead is my, believe it or not, is my most spiritual film. And then the interviewer asks him to elaborate. He just says, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, he says, I wanted to create, recreate the assorted elements that built this era and craft an exciting story that would seem believable enough in reality. Looking at the world now, I wonder how it wound up like this. Looking at issues like wars, conflicts, and organized crime, I can feel the world slowly fall out of balance. And I hope we can improve on that. Basically, though, Akira was heavily influenced by the manga I read as a child, and it portrays this kind of brilliant force that you see in people around the world in their younger, purer years. That's a simple theme I, I preached in Akira. It's a tragedy depicting people destroying the world's balance amid this era that I wanted to recreate. And the interviewer asks Otomo about the way Japanese media uses an incredibly destructive power, but that power having a restorative cleansing effect and how also in the world of Akira, it's the Japanese people themselves that bring on the catastrophe and not just some foreign entity. And Otomo says, certainly destruction and rebuilding are depicted in my works. Akira is Akira in particular. In Akira, the apocalypse happens in the midpoint of the story. 
So I think you can understand how much I'm interested in the two sides of what you call the utopia within the apocalypse. That might come from the elements of Japanese culture that I have within myself, but that's not a theory I build upon before I start writing. One thing I should emphasize is that I have no intention of advocating for Japanese culture in any way. Quite the opposite. I want to create stories influenced by many things from Japan, the US, and Europe, from art to movies and manga, and much more. I haven't deliberately set out to use Japanese instead of Westerners for the characters who promote the destruction of nature, but if it seems that way, it's not something I was wholly conscious of. Which I do like how he talks in, in this interview, because I think a lot of times writers just write what they know, right? And if something appears a certain way, it might be something that's like, they're not consciously thinking about, but it is a part of them. So naturally it comes out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I wasn't trying to say anything with that. It was just something that I I do because, you know. Well, he's just admitting it. I, you know, I, I thought that was really funny. And what's also interesting is he says that the destruction is caused at the midpoint of the story, which brings me to talk about the differences in the manga with the anime. It kind of um, fills some holes, I guess, or like some things that aren't really explained. Uh, in, in the film or in the manga, Tetsuo kind of breaks off from Aki. Tetsuo breaks off from Kaneda's group very early. Within the first of the six volumes, Tetsuo has already killed Yamagata. Oh, okay. And he ends up controlling the clowns. He has his own rival gang now. And as his powers increase, you know, there's the, the government guy, Rezu, Nezu, who's controlling Ryu. Nezu betrays Ryu's terrorist slash freedom fighter group. And he tries to kidnap Akira for himself. Akira is alive in the story. They actually... He actually is found, and he's a very powerful being. And then when the military is about to capture him, he's like, no, if I can't have Akira, nobody can. And he tries to kill Akira. But he misses, and he kills the boy, the other boy, the one in the very beginning of the, mov- of the movie. The Esper? Yes, the Esper, ta- ta- Takashi. And Akira, he sees this, and he's like, that was my friend. And then he goes nuts and he destroys neo tokyo at the midpoint of the story and in the aftermath tetsuo and akira form this new group called the tokyo the new tokyo empire and akira is kind of like a figurehead like everybody worships akira because they see him as this like being of immense power also interestingly enough the panel in which akira sees his dead friend the way it's framed and composed looks like a mushroom cloud, which I thought was very interesting. Mm. And he becomes this figurehead, right? Which is kind of like the relationship between your emperor and the guy who's really in charge, right? So you have Akira, the emperor, and the guy who's really in charge, Tetsuo. And they have this, uh, this whole thing. There's these Americans that are out there trying to control Tetsuo. And then there's this other group, you know, like the the cult leader. Yes, yeah. Uh, she, yeah. she plays a huge part in the story. Mm-hmm. She's she has her own group of of espers, her own group of people, and eventually the Colonel K Canada, they all help her group out. And there is a a battle similar, like with K and Tetsuo, 
The cult leader is also an esper. She has powers. She's trying to like communicate. She's trying to help people. It kind of ends the same way in Akira taking the espers and um, Tetsuo to a new universe. And at the end, uh, Canada and the rest of his friends or compatriots, they kind of like say, get out of here, Americans. We're going to lead this country, this nation, state, or country our own way. Oh, shit. So it feels a little bit more political in uh-huh. the manga. Because, you know, you have a group called the Tokyo Empire, and they're kind of the villains of the story. <laughs> um, you have these American influence, influence there that's kind of, like, not really good either. It seems interesting. It feels like it goes into a lot of stuff that the manga touches on. Like, the, the political groups. Like, the, the politics of Tokyo before the explosion and everything. And how it rebuilds. That's interesting. So it's it's like you took the beginning and the ending of the manga and put it in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said before that the manga was written in 82. The manga was, I, I believe, completed after the feature film was in theaters. Oh, okay. So he kept working on, on that story. He Yes, he kept working on it. He took a break from the manga to work on the movie. And then when the movie was done, he came back to the manga. That's interesting. Because I bet working on the movie for so long, he probably had that probably gave him some insight as to how he should end the movie or end the story. Sorry. In the manga. Mm-hmm. Right. Which like it's people have this idea that these creators, they have like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm it's just going to take six, nine months to do it. But like your vision changes as you work on it. Like it, it shapes as you work on it. And I bet you um, I don't have a million dollars, but I bet you. All the money I have that working on the movie influenced the direction he took with the manga. Absolutely. I bet I bet it did. Like working on the movie definitely had an influence on how he wanted to end the manga. Again, it's art. It's a process. It's not it's iteration. Mm -hmm. It's writing. It's editing. And then it's doing the same thing over and over again. And having a break to focus on the movie. Probably. Gave him a little little bit of time to like, oh, how do I feel about this? Absolutely. Well, I love when an artist gets to do something the way they see it. When they've been told how to do it for, throughout their entire career. So like, this is your chance to like go off, right? This is your chance. You do whatever you want. You were successful before. All right. We'll give you the, we'll give you the keys. And he creates something that is, has transcended pop culture. We see it referenced everywhere. It's on tick. It's got TikTok memes on it now. <laughs> it's everybody has heard of Akira in some way. Yes, even if they haven't seen the movie. And I really think you should see the movie because it is amazing. It's a great movie. It's very graphic, and violent. So you know, be beware of that yeah, when I, you watch this movie. I would but really I, just say that's the biggest thing. What, there is some graphic violence, right? Like I don't think it's. Uh, enough to really make some people scream like Hellraiser. Hellraiser is one where I'm like, ah, I would steer clear of that if you get uh, if you get if you don't like seeing blood. Obviously, this movie's animated, but the impact that it still hits really hard. So it might, you know, if you're kind of worried a little bit about the violence, if what we're saying this person mutating and blowing people up and you're seeing their guts 
fall from the ceiling and some people's guts hitting the floor. Like, if that sounds gross, I would probably steer clear from this. It's still a great right. movie, but that would be the only thing that would make me tell someone, don't go watch it. Because outside of that, I think everybody should. I think it's a great movie. Even if you don't understand Japan at the time, in the 80s, Japan during the 40s, I think there's still, like you said, that story of power and people wielding it and kind of how it could shape people. I think that's just a such a universal theme in the movie that's like, mm-hmm. you should just watch that e- even if that's how you only want to enjoy the movie. Because again, it's a piece of art that's really fucking cool. Yes. One thing I'll say about the animation is its use of slow motion and the way it moves the camera. Because there's no camera. You're like, you're drawing different perspectives. But the way it, like in the very beginning of the movie, when you see these bodies fall off these bikes and the camera, like it, you have like a slow-mo effect. You kind of have it again when the colonel tries to kill Tetsuo and Tetsuo kind of like falls. He like, I don't know what he shoots him with, but his body goes flying and it's in slow motion. And it's like, Wow. The way they, they took the time to animate that in that way, uh, it beautifully done. Very impactful. It's just a gorgeous movie all around. It's it's gorgeous and ugly at the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Gorgeously ugly. Gorgeously <laughs> ugly. I like that description. Anyway, let's move on to our quotes. This is the part of the episode where in lieu of a five-star system, we talk about how we feel about the movie with a quote from the movie. It can be... Our favorite quote, it can be a quote that made us laugh. It can be a quote that uh, summarizes the conversation that we just had. George usually goes first. And George usually breaks the rules. Yeah, so I did break the rules. There are two <laughs> quotes that I think kind of worked hand in hand. Uh, so I kind of chose these two quotes because they kind of get at the idea that uh, that's kind of been happening in my head because of this movie, but also because of like Oppenheimer recently. The first quote is from Colonel Shiki Shikishima, and he says, My job isn't to believe or disbelieve. It is to act or not act. There's a quote later on from Takashi, who says, It was too difficult for Tetsuo, of course, too difficult for us and for Akira. It, it wasn't, it's not how I feel about the movie, but I think it is one of the biggest takeaways as well, is that this power that they're talking about is too great. It's too much. It's not, you know, it's too much for one nation to handle, for a person even. But that's what politicians do. That's what that's what we do as as a as a species, right? It's to uh, we we don't try to take these things on any deeper level. We just we we can either do it or we can't, right? And I think it, it that quote those quotes hit hard after I rewatched Oppenheimer. And, you know, there's a whole scene where, I mean, minor spoilers, I guess, but people are like, you know, Oppenheimer's making this bomb, not with the intention of dropping it, but uh, naively thinking that this is going to stop the war because now they've achieved achieved this scientific achievement. But, you know, in, in a part of the movie, it's like, no, we're, we're going to use these because we have them. Like, it's kind of, uh, th- there's like a, a political character in that movie and he doesn't say it verbatim, but he kind of just says the same thing that cur- that the colonel says. My job isn't to believe or disbelieve. It is to act or not act. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, it, it was a quote that just stood out the most um, after rewatching both movies. Do you feel like the, the colonel 
um, is like a, a force of good, force of bad, neutral? Well, I don't even know because, yeah, neutral, I guess, at this point, because, you know, he doesn't like the city. He compares it to, what, what does he say? What's that quote? <laughs> He's like uh, uh, he he's he's not a fan of the city, but he thinks he has to save it because he's a military guy and he takes control away from these politicians who are definitely taking advantage of the situation that's happening, especially they're enacting these tax, these tax reforms. They're killing people out in the streets. Well, it's his military that's doing it. Well, it's his military right? that's doing it, but he ha- he's following the orders of, that they have. Uh, and it's not until the end where he has his own coup where he takes power away from them. But even then, it's not it doesn't really solve anything. You know, he tries to, quote unquote, help Tetsuo, but it's really in the end to just harness this energy. Right. And if it wasn't him, it was going to be the scientists. So it's just like. Uh, it's complicated, right, because these are characters that he probably has good intentions, but he's just going about he, it. He probably believes he does. Yeah. Or, y- yes. He he believes he has regardless good of whether or not he believes he has good intentions. Yeah. He does he th- help things? He needs to do what he needs to do. Right. Mm. It will lead to a good outcome for Japan, which is, you, you know, the mentality that a lot of people have. But, you know, after a certain point, you have to just know that you can't control this stuff. Right. And mm-hmm. that goes back to Takashi's quote. It was difficult for Tetsuo. Of course, it was difficult for us and for Akira, meaning nobody can contain this power. Nobody can handle it. Nobody knew what to do with it. And that's something that someone like the colonel will never be able to understand. Same with the scientists, same with the politicians who had the nuclear weapon that we still have it today. Right. Oh, a lot more people have it now. Yeah, pe- well, exactly. More people, more countries now have it than ever before. And they think it could be used as a weapon. It's like, no, they don't really grasp it for whatever reason. So that was that, those were the two quotes mm-hmm. that stood out to me the most. Good quotes. That's there is something very interesting about the colonel because like there's in the manga, I feel like he ends up on like the good side. But like the whole like my job isn't to believe or not is to act or to not. And I feel like that like coldness, like removing yourself from the world that you live in is not a good thing. No, it's not. And that's, that's what makes him really interesting. Yeah. Interesting character. I, I feel like, uh, maybe killing Tetsuo early on would have been better, but you still would have had these espers. You still would have had Nezu who's trying to, he's after money. Like he doesn't care about a revolution. Nezu's undermining the Colonel, making things worse. But he's not out for it to change Japan. He's out for it to like make himself richer, which is a bad thing. I, f- I feel like there's a lot of people out there who speak on behalf of the people, but they don't care about the people. They care about themselves. You know, very interesting stuff. It um, is, yeah. But but the quote that that I liked the most, the one that resonated me, that kind of summarized what the movie was trying to say. I think to the simplest degree is the one I mentioned earlier from Kyoko, uh, the esper with the, who can see the future. She says that Akira's power exists within everyone. And it doesn't matter if you're ready for that power or not, or when that power is awakened, even if you aren't prepared for it, 
you must make a choice on how to use it. It's ultimately the reason why the the espers save Canada, right? Because throughout the film, he uses, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's using his power to like dominate the other biker group, which is kind of bad for the the people that are just existing in Neo Tokyo, right? Like there's this dude who's having dinner or this dude who's like driving home from work and he, his car gets exploded because these bikers are having their, their gang fight or whatever. <laughs> but you typically he uses his power to help people, right? He, he helped, he tries to, to break into a military facility to save his friend. Uh, he helps this girl get out of a police interrogation where, you know, it's a fascist state. They will execute her if they find her yeah. and he helps get her out. Yeah, he does have alter ulterior motives, but he doesn't like chase her down and like force her to be with him. Um, and at the end, he does put his laser gun down to try to help his friend who's morphed into this monster. Um, so I, I feel like it's kind of like, uh, hey, even though this world is a terrible place, when you have a moment to like use your power, use it for good. I think otherwise these espers are going to form teddy bears and kill you because you're you're bad <laughs> that's my quote nice this is a quote i thought about the most after watching the movie so that is our episode on akira i'm glad we decided to watch it no definitely i i thought i had a great time revisiting it and yeah i i, I just thought it was really timely uh and it was good to mm-hmm. kind of rewatch this and and, and talk about this movie and other movies and yeah man you know especially during this strike it's like it's good to 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 watch different things outside of the out of the big studio systems absolutely um i believe we wanted to try to visit the cabinet of dr calgary next yeah yeah that's a that's an old school ass movie it might be the oldest movie we've worked on outside of um uh what was it uh Within our gates, yeah, 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 yeah. It might be older than that, huh? It's it's one of those movies that has a very distinct art style. That if you watch a Tim Burton movie, you'll be like, "Hey, he stole that from the Cabinet of Doctor Calgari." <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if we've talked about a movie uh, that 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 was very German German expressionist. I I would also maybe consider going to Metropolis because that's a film that also from that period also very very influential i feel like no two silent german films are more influential on current like pop culture stuff than those two films which ones calgary and uh, metropolis oh that's right oh and actually okay so hold on dr cabinet of dr caligari and within our gates are both 1920 damn tied well with that we will see you in two weeks hopefully we are on social media at retrograde underscore pod on twitter instagram and tiktok we are retrograde podcast on youtube we have a discord but we don't give out our discord information freely we have to make sure you're a person with goodwill you're gonna use your power for good and not evil (laughs) so you know, DM us so we can verify that you're you're cool and a human, not a bot. 
and we will let you in the Discord. Play, well, I play fighting games. I'm trying to get George to play fighting games, but I don't think he will. No, I'll I'll play some. I'll say this: I'm really excited for Mortal Kombat One. I'm seventy dollar game. I know, man, but I, I just I, I I fell off the Mortal Kombat bandwagon a, a long time ago because I used to play it back on the PlayStation Two. Um, and on the uh, my, the only reason I'm I would consider getting Mortal Kombat is to play fighting games with people that won't play any other fighting game. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, and that's yeah. Like, there's a lot of cool fighting games, but I'm like, ah, I don't know. It's MK. You know, it's the classic. They're not even introducing new characters. No, but they're except but for they're, like the third party ones. Yeah, but they're but they're uh, rebooting it. You know, they're and I want to see what yeah. this. I want to keep up with this reboot because then after not, I fell off. I wow, I fell off like in Shaolin Monk, so I didn't even follow the reboot in <laughs> Mortal Kombat Nine. So now that they're back to one, I'm like, all right, this is my chance. Uh, and it'd all be right. good to get some new games into my rotation because I've been playing Siege for years. I'd like to play something else. I like. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I'm still gonna. I'm still gonna die playing Siege, but or a Siege will die bef- and you'll be mourning. That would be depressing. I do not. I'm sorry. I, that's even. That's a scary thought. Don't even put that in my head. <laughs> Okay, well, we can check us out on Discord. We'll, we'll be back uh, in two weeks with Do- Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. We are going to be releasing some Patreon episodes to make up for the um, lack of episodes. You know, been going through some life changes that have been very... Um, taking up a lot of time, I guess, to process mentally, but we're back. We're going to be creating a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we're going to be coming up with a rant i think george has like a big rant that he's been taking a while to edit yes yeah that. he didn't want to sound too mad he doesn't want to sound too mad and turn all of you off no but it, it's he, just enough mad because again we get angry because we care yeah yeah we're also going to be working on a chris tier list a few years ago there was a tier some an innocent tweet saying all right one of these chris's has to go and everybody picked Chris Pratt, and people were like, "Why?" And then we found out a lot of stuff about Chris Pratt, and it is a weird thing that happened. And we're gonna do it again, but with a bunch of other Chris's. It's it's all in good fun, you know. Like, there's no real like meaning to why we put people at S tier or D tier, other than our own thing. It's it'll be a fun thing, no malice behind it. Listen to it on the Patreon. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, cool. Same here. Well, we will see you in two weeks or sooner on the Patreon. See ya. Mm-hmm.